Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey everybody. Today, Rado talks through episode 50 of the podcast, which may sound like a really big milestone. Hooray! We hit number 50, especially since I just turned 50 in April. However, Seeing as how I do one episode a month, number 50 is really not that big a deal. That means I'm in my early fourth year. Really, the big one to celebrate will be episode 60, because then I will have been coming to you folks for five total years. So, nothing particularly special about episode 50 today. We're just going to revisit some top 10, we're going to do some Q's and A's, and we're going to talk about some new and exciting games of interest. So, if you'd like to hear about those, hang on everybody. We'll be right back. Alrighty, folks. Looks like, if I counted correctly, we've got 19 new games and expansions to talk about that I have discovered in my wanderings on Board Game Geek recently. And uh, there's some really good stuff in here. So let's start with Cities Skylines, the board game. And now this is the latest SimCity-inspired board game to come out. I mean, there's like a whole mini genre of them. There's a bunch to choose. So what makes City Skyline stand out from all the idea of us working cooperatively to try to build a city that met all the needs of its citizens and dealt with disasters and all of that, also inspired very much by SimCity. The issue with that for a lot of people was that it was a semi-co-op game, which meant we, each of us, while we're all working together to try and hit milestones and not let the city completely fail, we had special secret lobbyist cards that we we had to take care of. We had to take care of our donors, basically, to hold our seats on the city council. And, I mean, we like it a lot. But I know for a lot of people, semi-co-op is just a non-starter. Well, you're in luck. City Skyline offers full co-op from one of, uh, well, as far as I'm concerned, one of the most renowned civ-building designers out there. So, Cities Skyline, I'm excited. But if we continue on, we next up find Aftermath. Now, this is interesting. It's from Jerry Hawthorne, who, you know, made a big name for himself with uh, Mice and Mystics, and then followed that up with, oh, uh, Stuffed Fables. And then last year had another, oh, what was his most recent one? That was, it was the one for grown-ups, basically. And I can't think of the name of it. Oh, shoot. Although, of course, I have filmed run-throughs for all of these, so you'd think I'd remember it all, but there were just too many games to remember everything, folks. What was Jerry's most recent game? It was Memory, or, you know, what was it called? Oh, Comanots. Comanots, right. So, in each one of Jerry's games, the world-building and narrative has been exemplary. You know, top of the class. In fact, almost nobody in the industry creates vibrant, exciting worlds that we want to live in more than Jerry. In fact, I mean, he's so good at it, apparently a major motion picture is going to be made out of one of his games. And that does not happen every day in the board game industry. He is that good. And while Mice and Mystics, his first big title, was designed really 
To focus on families and young kids, his designs, I think, have been improving game after game after game. Now, unfortunately, for every one of his games, they've never really quite landed with me and Jen. They just haven't quite given us enough depth that we're looking for. Maybe, maybe Aftermath is going to be the one where it finally is a keeper for me and Jen because we really want to. We love all of his worlds. And like I said, his gameplay has gotten better and better and better with each game. But all that aside, what is the storyline? What is this world in Aftermath? Well, he's once again going back to anthropomorphized animals like mice and mystics, little gerbils and uh, and and uh, mice and and various cute cuddly critters. But the the um, setting is amazing. It's our modern world, and for mysterious reasons, all of humanity has just disappeared. And all that's left are, are, are the animals and you know, our house pets. And so this game is set in basically a post-apocalyptic big city where the little animals are just wandering around having adventures. And again, they're anthropomorphized, so you know they, they dress in clothes that they make from you know the offshoots and you know they might make a sword out of a needle and all that kind of cool stuff. But um, you know, I, that's I mean from the art that you can see on Board Game Geek, this looks super duper compelling. I am absolutely confident this is going to be a wonderful narrative-driven game. And my hope is, like I said, the, the gameplay, which has always been good, just not Jensen my kind of thing, I'm hoping this one finally elevates to the same level as his storytelling in Aftermath. Then we've got King Domino Duel. Now, King Domino is a very, very neat little game where players draft dominoes with... Uh, Carcassonne-esque landscapes on them and try to build the best little tiny uh, uh, kingdom that you can to score points. It was a very nice game, but really the draft didn't work. It worked okay in two players, but it was really better at higher player counts. And I've never tried Queen Domino, I'm sorry to say. I'd always like to give it a go. But I'm even more excited about King Domino Duel because, one, it's two-player only. So that one would have to assume, is going to break the two-player curse of King Domino. And two, it's a dice-rolling game. In this game, we don't go with preset dominoes, you know, that might show, I don't know, fields and then lakes or, or what have you. Instead, we roll dice and build dominoes out of those dice. You know, we, we would take a field die and a lake die, put them together, and that's the domino we use for our landscape as we try to build kingdoms. That sounds really, really cool. And like I said, the, the core game was always very good. It's just for me and Jen, we thought, oh, it's just kind of okay too. We'd much rather play with higher player counts. So the dual version with lots of dice rolling sounds very, very cool and very exciting. So then we've got Clank Expeditions Temple of the Ape Lords. And you know what? That's all I need to know. Everything that has come out so far for Clank has been lovely, and I expect this will be lovely too. You know, continue to show lots of variety and, and clever new twists. Uh, apparently, the Ape Lord is some kind of mechanized monster that chases us around, so it'll probably be a new twist on the uh, mummy's curse that we had in one of the earlier ones where the mummy would move around and bother people. Now we have a robot ape chasing us. And apparently, from the description, the, the dungeon we're going through is heavily mechanized as well. So does that mean the board comes alive and doesn't just sit there waiting for us to explore it? I don't know. I don't care. I know Clank Expedition's Temple of the Ape Lords is going to be great. Then we've got uh, Copenhagen Roll and Write. Now, Copenhagen, I did a run-through for it, is an excellent... Was it on Kickstarter when I did it? Yeah, I think so. 
I don't remember. But anyway, you can go check out my run-through. It was another great polyomino, Tetris-inspired style board game. Really great family weight uh, game. I could certainly play it with my mom if she were interested, but Jen and I enjoyed it as gamers as well. And now the same designers are bringing us a Roll and Write version. And apparently... Like I mentioned earlier, where with Kigamino Duel, where you roll the dice and then use them to build dominoes, now we roll the dice and use them to create Tetris pieces, polyominoes. That sounds really cool, too. That's quite a coincidence that both of these games came along at the same time with that same core idea. It'll be really interesting to see how well they pull it off. But I have high hopes, because Copenhagen was very, very good. So Copenhagen Roll and Write should be as well. Then there's Cosmic Run Express. Steve Finn, Dr. Finn, once again gives us another, well, I'm assuming, excellent two-player-only dueling-style game. I think, I'm almost starting to think that's where he's at his best. Yes, Biblios is still the high watermark of his career, which worked well with all player counts, but... You know, Institute for Magical Arts and Capo to Copy. Uh, he has done so many amazing games where it's just you and me sitting across the table from each other, both vying for control over the same resource. This time it's the Galaxy. It's his latest title in the Cosmic Run series, which I can understand why he keeps revisiting it because the first Cosmic Run was a co-design between him and his son. So he must have a huge warm spot in his heart for revisiting. But I am just... Highly confident it'll be another phenomenal two-player game that Jen and I will absolutely adore and won't want to get rid of because, I mean, man, I, I, in my most recent top 10 underrated games, which I'll be talking about in just a little bit, revisiting, I could have made an entire just top 10 over underrated or overlooked Steve Finn games. He's really one of the best consistently most predictably solid designers working today, and he does not get near enough credit. He's totally indie, he's not really working with other big publishers, and as a result, his Kickstarters never really seem to, you know, get off the ground. They just barely squeak by. I, but I, I mean, this guy is so good. He's, sh he's so ready to quit his day job and just devote himself full-time. And I'm sure Cosmic Run Express will continue to be part of his winning streak. After that, we've got Enchanter's Odyssey, which you should see going live on Kickstarter any day now. I've actually done a rundown for it, and I'm just going to spoil that for you right now and say it is fantastic. Enchanter's, when we first played it years ago, we immediately fell in love with it. Such an awesome card drafting game of enchanting artifacts and defeating monsters. With an incredibly simple, elegant, smooth gameplay system that is just fun and compulsive and fast. This is the second expansion for it. Uh, Overlords was the first expansion, which was actually a standalone. And uh, this is the best Enchanters has ever been. A lot of really cool new ideas have been added to the game that really change up gameplay. All of the modules, like always, are completely backwards compatible, so you can just have tons of replayability. And most importantly, with the release of Odyssey, the developers have come up with a very satisfying co-op variant. Which means all of the different cards that have come out that have really been mostly about players attacking each other, now... We don't have to attack each other to use those cards. We can fight a common enemy when we're doing it. So, 
I really like that. What I imagine in the future is if we play the game and we get our random selection of cards, hey, if there's no attacky cards, we'll play competitive. Oh, did we draw attacky cards as part of our random setup? We'll play co-op. I love that. I love that flexibility on Enchanters is better than ever before with Enchanters Odyssey. Next up, there's Escape Tales Low Memory. Now, last year, we had the first Escape Tales game, which I did a a brief rundown for when I saw it at UK Games Expo. And it was really neat. This is a cross between an escape room in your home type game, you know, with lots of puzzles you have to work your way through to be able to move forward, and a bigger, sprawling, narrative-driven adventure game. This is a big deal. And the first Escape Tales... What was the full title of it? I don't remember. Let me see if I can look that up. Because Escape Tales is just the name of the series. Right. Escape Tales... Oh, come on. Where is it? I am going to find... Oh, Escape Tales The Awakening was very, very neat. My only problem with it was that it was also very dark and grim. It was about a single dad whose daughter is in a coma and he has to go into a nightmarish hellscape to basically make a deal with the devil and save her soul or you know stuff like that. And uh, you know I've never played it because from what I've read, it gets dark. Really, really dark. And I just knew Jen would not be particularly interested in spending a lot of time. I'm hoping this new one, Escape Tales Low Memory, doesn't get quite so dark. I'm certainly very, very intrigued by the subject matter, though. It's a cyberpunk future, and um, instead of, you know, going into a demonic alternate dimension, we are... Uh, basically adventuring through our memories. Because something bad has happened, we don't know what it is, we've completely forgotten, and since we're in the future, we can use technology to rewind and see what happened as we try to you know, stitch together our fragmented memories. That is an awesome subject matter. Very, very rich narrative fodder there. And hopefully the gameplay will be good too. Uh, again, The Awakening was very, very good, and I'm hoping... Escape Tales Low Memory will be just as good, if not better, you know, learning the lessons from the previous game, but be something that Jen would find a little bit more palatable. After that, we've got Habitats, the Extra Large Expansion. And uh, this is nice. This is so nice. It's it's nothing more than just a bunch of new tiles. What is it? Eight new animal tiles, four new campsites, four uh, flower tiles... I don't need to know anything more because Habitats is one of the best tile-laying games to come out in recent years. Really, I mean, it, I, I'm i going to have to someday revisit my top 10 tile layers and I'd be kind of surprised if it didn't make that list. It's that good. And, you know, tiling is one of my favorite gameplay mechanisms of all time. So we really loved Habitats. And so, more tiles? Yes, please. But then if we move on, we get to... Oh, this one sounds so cool. It's the Lands of Galzier. Uh, Galzier. Galzier. G-A-L-Z-Y-R. And this is a big, sprawling adventure game that is designed to be impossible to finish in one sitting. To be able to explore the entirety of the world and you know interact with all the Denzians of this fantasy land and all that. It's designed to be played over many, many sessions, including a system that makes it very, very easy to save and later on reset up your current situation. Now, if that sounds familiar, that's because it worked brilliantly. The same idea in the Seventh Continent. Also in this war of mine. Also more recently in Tainted Grail. I love this. 
If there is one thing I would like to bring from the video game universe into board games, it is this notion of being able to have big, epic games that where you know you don't just oh wrap it up and put it all away and feel very episodic like you know an old style TV show where every time you play it's just one standalone thing, but instead your adventures lead from one to the next. But in a situation where hey we got a couple hours we'll play a long game, we only have forty five minutes we'll play a short game. Either way we can save our progress easily put it back, and then get out later. So, every game that has done this so far has been very, very impressive, and Lands of Galaxy is the latest one to do it. And I am also excited about this because it is from designer-artist Sammy Laxo, who uh, previously has given us the wonderful deck-building games... Oh, I thought I'd remember it by the time I got there, but I can't remember it now. Oh, Dale of Merchants. Dale of Merchants, which is another fantasy kingdom full of anthropomorphized creatures. We get to explore his world more than ever before in a big, sweeping adventure game. Very, very keen on this. Um, I I cannot wait to see what Sammy comes up with, because all of his designs so far have been really, really sharp. And I expect the same from the lands of Galzir. After that, we've got Mint Cooperative. Now, a few years ago, I did a run-through for Mintworks, which I was so surprised packed a really nice worker placement punch in a game that fit literally in an Altoids tin. Uh, Really very cool. And plus, you know, a very very clever approach to worker placement because it was a game where players all shared a common pool of workers. A big bang for a very, very tiny buck. After that, uh, Mint Delivery came out, and I have to admit I never really sought it out because, Jen, I just don't care about Pick Up and Deliver. Hey, great, you've made a Pick Up and Deliver game in a in an Altoid, in a box the size of Altoid Mint Box. Just didn't care. But I'm very interested now that they're doing a full cooperative game in the same form factor, especially because it's a cooperative superhero game. And why hasn't there been more of these? Seems like uh, the biggest, best superhero games, for the most part, have been um, you know competitive. You know, I'm thinking predominantly of... Oh, I can't think of it. The one where you mix and match and create your heroes. Sphere not is the hero made... Oh, I... Oh! Oh, too many games. I cannot remember them all. All right, I'm actually going to look around on these shelves and be very, very boring for you folks to listen to until I find it. Oh, there it is. Heroes Wanted, which is great, but it's... Why should superheroes compete? They should work together. So, I'm excited about... I would just be excited about a cooperative superhero game in the first place. One that fits in the side of an Altoids tin? Okay, very, very interested. Cannot wait to give it a try. After that, we've got Clip Cut Parks. Clip Cut is one word. And here's the deal. This is not a roll and write... This is a roll and cut, which is to say, I'm assuming the game comes with a pad of paper and everybody gets their own sheet of paper, but instead of using a pen or a pencil and writing up all the progress they're making on developing, you know, wonderful city parks to travel around in and enjoy, we take out scissors. The game will actually come with scissors, you know, those little rounded ones like you had uh, in grade school. Everybody gets scissors and you cut your piece of paper up to make... Uh, pieces that will puzzle together. I'm assuming polyomino pieces. I don't really know for sure. This is so cool! Um, you know, because if you're going to... I mean, well, we have such a huge glut over the last couple of years of these sort of disposable games where you just go through your pad of paper. 
But now, cutting them up instead of writing on them is so clever. I cannot wait to see how it works. Now, some people will have a problem with it, of course, because, oh, that means once I get down to my last three or four pages, I can't laminate them. But you know what? I bet you anything the publisher will just let you print out more pieces of paper. So don't worry about that, folks. I'm just really excited about the idea. I have, you know, Arts and Crafts the board game is what it sounds like to me. And that sounds very, very cool. Clip Cut Park. Clips Cut Park. Okay. After that, we've got um, Concordia Balearic. The uh, Balear- Balearica? Balearica? Yeah, I'm going to assume. Um, this is the latest map. And it's actually, there's two different versions of this. There's Balearica slash Cyprus, or Balearica slash Italia. Because if you have the first, uh, you know, the first just straight Concordia, you would pick up Balearica slash Cyprus. Because the recent Concordia Venus uh, was a standalone game, and so far that was the only way you could get the Cyprus map. Now you can get the Cyprus map as the B-side of the Balearica map. And uh, on the flip side, if you only have Venus and you've never been able to get the Italian map that came in the original Concordia, you can get Balearica slash Italia. So that's cool right there to kind of fill in a hole for completionists who want to make sure they have every single map, depending on which version they have, regular Concordia or Concordia Venus. That aside, though, um, Balearica itself sounds very, very cool because it adds a whole new resource, fish, and a bunch of gameplay around the harvesting of fish. So it sounds like it might be the biggest game changer, well, probably since introducing, you know, the uh, the special goal cards in which one was it? Salsa. So I am very, very excited for a new uh, twist in Balearica, Concordia Balearica. After that, we're continuing on with Entrepreneurs. And it feels like forever since we've gotten a new Martin Wallace game. But we are finally getting a new Martin Wallace game! Woohoo! And uh, I'm very, very excited about this because this is about, this is uh, set in the near future, I think, and it, or, you know, the medium future. Not science fiction, but not just, not just tomorrow, but day after tomorrow. It's basically a simulation of mankind's colonization of our solar system. So it's not some far off, crazy interstellar type thing. This is about, you know, the more hard science of, you know, getting a base on Ganymede or, you know, various and sundry. Uh, celestial bodies all around our solar system. Um, So I'm intrigued by the subject matter. Certainly this is not the first game that's touched on this. But uh, it's from Martin Wallace. And it's another deck builder. And considering how good his deck building games have been, I'm very, very excited for entrepreneurs. My only worry is there's no mention in the description, does this game feature direct player conflict? Knowing his background, I give it a 50-50 chance. And if it does... We'll probably pass. But if it doesn't, we will be there with bells on for entrepreneurs. Okay, after that, Harry Potter Death Eaters Rising. And I'm very excited about this because, well, what was it? Last year, a neat little tie-in game with Avengers Infinity War came out uh, just in time for the movie Infinity War called uh, Thanos Rising. And it was a cooperative game where players had to recruit all kinds of characters from you know the Marvel movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and, and fight off all of Thanos' minions. And I heard it was actually a pretty good game. I never sought it out, because at the time, I was desperate to avoid any spoilers, even tiny incidental spoilers. I didn't want to know who the bad guys were in the film. You know, Even if the game didn't reveal any plot points, I just didn't want to know anything. So I completely skipped it. Even though, apparently, it was a fun, solid game. 
Well, I'm glad I waited, because now that same gameplay mechanism is being applied to the Harry Potter universe, which, of course, is Jen's favorite fictional universe of all time. So I know she will be very, very excited about this, and I've just been wanting to try the gameplay. So Harry Potter, Death Eaters Rising, high, high, high on our want list. But I don't know if it's as high as my next game, Paris. And here's the deal. This is from Game Brewer, which is a relatively new little independent publisher that last year you know, hit the big time right out of the gate with Gugong, where Andreas Stedding, a very, very well-established designer and this brand new publisher, made one of the 10 best games of the year. Well, this year, Game Brewer is back, and they're working with Kramer and Kiesling, the greatest design duo in board gaming history. So, if Gugong is anything to go by, Paris should be amazeballs. And that's why it is super-duper high on my must-try list. I think it's actually officially a 2020 game, but my assumption is it will be going on Kickstarter sometime this year. And by the way, Game Brewers, if you're listening, I'd certainly be interested in maybe talking about covering it. Anyway, though, uh, I can also wait for the final version, which is what happened with uh, Gugong. But anyway, Paris... Uh, I don't need to know. You, you had me at Kramer and Kiesling. And then furthermore, you had me at Game Brewers. So, bring on Paris, I say. After that, we have Rescue Animals. Now, this is a game where players are actually uh, trying to rescue animals in the modern real world that are in danger of you know extinction and all that. That's a lovely title. I'm sure it'll be very, very attractive and appealing to both me and Jen. But more importantly, it is from the designers of The Sanctuary. Another game that kind of touched the same topics. Now, The Sanctuary was a brilliant worker placement game with one of the most fresh, novel, new approaches to worker placement I've seen in quite a while. And it worked quite nicely. So... Oh, even though in the end there were some issues with the gameplay that uh, you know kept it from really uh, landing, but I, I thought the core gameplay was fantastic. And it's just if I recall correctly, maybe it wasn't that great for two. It's been so long since I played it. But long story short, while it wasn't a fit, it definitely put his designer on my list to watch. And now he's back. I could try to say his name, but it's, it looks like it's a Polish name, and it looks very complex. I'm not going to try to say it. But the Rescue Animals, I expect, I hope, is going to be equally clever and fresh and original. And it is a real-time dice-rolling competitive game where we're rolling dice as fast as we can to save these animals. Jen and I have definitely enjoyed real-time dice-offs before, so I cannot wait to see one that really fits our sweet spot for subject matter, if it'll work out well. Uh, I have, I've got high hopes for Rescue Animals. And after this, I almost didn't put this one on, because this is supposed to be games of interest for me, and personally I'm not interested in this, because I already got mine, Jack, but I had to give a shout-out to it anyway, because it is so exciting that the Seventh Continent classic edition is going to be available very soon. And what is that? Well, Seventh Continent is a beast of a game. Comes with over a thousand cards if you had backed it on Kickstarter, and that makes it far too burdensome to be able to mass produce for retail distribution like a regular board game. And for the longest time, the publisher said, look, we don't know that we're ever going to be able to make this available beyond our Kickstarter campaigns. Well, they have found a way by stripping out some of the content so it doesn't come with near as many cards, it doesn't come with miniatures, it just comes with standees, a few other compromises, but hopefully, I don't expect any compromises to the gore gameplay, and now you'll be able to direct order this, all the folks who missed out. You won't be getting the 100 percent 
full Seventh Continent experience, but you know what? 85% of uh, Seventh Continent is still tons more than what most games give you. It's just an amazingly ambitious game full of so much goodness. I'm so happy more players will be able to explore the Seventh Continent with the Classic Edition. Last game, folks. Toy Story Obstacles and Adventure. This is really interesting. This is kind of a repeat. Uh, earlier I talked about how Thanos Rising was repackaged into a Harry Potter universe game. Now we have a Harry Potter universe game, Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle, repackaged into the Toy Story universe. It's the same thing. Uh, Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle was a very neat cooperative deck builder, which we liked quite a bit. I mean, well, my wife loved it because it was Harry Potter and very thematic and, you know, really brought the world to life and all that. But I thought it, we both thought it was cool because the gameplay was nice and sharp and solid and a really great kind of epic campaign mode that we played all the way through. My only problem is once you'd actually played all the way through, the game kind of got a bit too big and cumbersome and, um, and kind of overstayed its welcome, which was a real shame. But it was a great ride while we rode it. My hope is, now that they're taking that same system and applying it to the Toy Story universe, which sounds adorable, that they will have learned some of their lessons and get, given it stronger legs for post-campaign play. So I'm definitely interested, definitely intrigued to try out Toy Story, Obstacles, and Adventures. I don't know about that title, though, but I'm sure it makes sense once you get it. That's it, folks. Now, those are the new games of interest. And if you hold on a second now, we'll be right back um, to revisit just one, I think. I'm really behind. Just one top ten. Hang on. Okie doke, folks. Top 10 topic time, and I am so far behind on my top 10s. Uh, because in June, I should have actually done two additional top 10s and another revisit. All I got was revisiting my top 10 underrated games, which I'm about to talk about. But I have May and June's regular top 10 and June's revisit as well. Oh, man. Oh, I'm, I'm dying here. So July is going to be crazy. I'm expecting to probably, if I can pull it off, give you three top tens and two revisits as well. I'm not quite sure what all those top tens are. I think it might be time to refresh the master list I've been working on often for the last few years and give voters a chance to redeclare what they really want to see. But I believe the revisits that I'll be recording in July, if all goes to plan, will be top 10 worker placement and top 10 my personal faves of all time, because those are both five years out, so it's time to, to uh, refresh them. But that's for the future. Let's talk about today. More games that are underrated should have got more buzz, more attention, more love. And like I said in the video itself, man, I, I could go on forever. But as it is right now, I've got a list of... How many do I have here? What is this? This looks like 15 titles, and every one of these I very seriously considered. I mean, all of these were almost tied for 11th or 12th place. These are the ones that really jumped out at me. And like I said, there's plenty more besides, but I just can't keep going. I want to give all of them love. But for now, I'll just limit myself to these additional 15 above the 10 I already did. And what are they? Well, in no particular order other than the alphabet, let's start with Area 1851, an incredibly charming 
worker placement game with some really neat twists and a lovely theme. Basically, an American Old West town where aliens have landed and engage in trade with the, the settlers and the Native Americans. And so, all the gizmos and gadgets that we build in this game are hodgepodges of alien technology, uh, American pioneer technology, and Native American uh, technology. Really neat. Uh, Jen loves it to pieces, and I thought it was neat. Uh, fun, fun, fun game. I didn't put it on the list because, you know, recently they did work on a sequel of sorts. So I guess that means it got more love than I thought it did. But I really didn't think it uh, really got much attention. Anyway, Area 1851, that's why it didn't quite make the list. Citrus is a wonderful tile land game. Absolutely phenomenal. One of the tensest, smartest ones uh, that's come around in years from uh, Jeffrey Allers, who is a really awesome designer and just an underrated designer in general. People should love and follow him more regularly, I think. And um, the game itself, my biggest issue with it is it, it, it can be fairly cutthroat. But, but again, that just speaks to its wonderfulness because in spite of that, Jen and I really enjoyed it. It has a really just absolutely bonkers awesome tile drafting system that I haven't seen anywhere else. Although I do think there's a game coming soon that uh, copies it or you know, re-implements it. Uh, this, this notion of being able to get progressively diminishing returns on your tile drafting. And then the tile laying was very, very sharp as well as we try to create citrus groves. And like I said, since players were working on a communal board instead of their own private area, that could get a little bit cutthroat as, oh, wow, you're about to score big off of that. I got to cut you off by building in this space before you get there. But man, Citrus, oh, it deserves so much more love than it gets. Also, Cosmic Run, which I... Well, I mentioned in the video that I could have easily done a top 10 overlooked games from Steve Finn. And I just mentioned it earlier in this podcast. Because Steve Finn is the engine that could. Just keeps putting out awesome game after awesome game. And his entire Cosmic Run series, they've all been absolutely great. But they do not seem to be catching fire. Like they should. Uh, in the end, if I had, I, I decided, well, you know what, I, can, I really should only list one Steve Finn game. And... The Institute of Magical Arts seemed a bit more egregiously overlooked, but I could have easily put in Cosmic Run or several other games as well. And after that, you've got CV, which, oh, it just charmed the pants off of me and Jen. A Yahtzee-style dice roller where over the course of the game, you try to build the perfect life, the, the best well-lived life. So sharp, really great presentation. Everything about it was wonderful. And, um, yeah, I, I think it did okay. It did get an expansion. So... I know that kind of gave me pause for not putting it. Uh, and then the other thing is, I've only ever played it as a two-player game, and I have heard at higher player counts, maybe it gets a little bit too long, and I could see that maybe happening. But as a two-player game, it's just about perfect. But it was those issues that made me hesitate to put it on this list. Then we've got Destination Neptune, which is a subject matter, the colonization of our solar system that I absolutely adore. I just talked about that earlier in this very podcast as well. And this is a very, very sharp, really good economic simulation uh, that with a kind of a Puerto Rico, you know, I pick an action, everybody gets to do it type vibe. And yeah, I think this one just disappeared overnight in part because Tom Vassell really ripped it apart. And I think, as a result, a lot of people didn't give it the due it deserved. Because I really think he... 
I, you know, I, I love Tom. I think he's great, but sometimes he so misses the mark. And this is one that, I mean, I mean, I know I've talked to the publisher. Uh, t- uh, Tom's negative review of it really just undercut it big time. And even though uh, the publisher did a just barely squeaking by successful Kickstarter campaign to release a little mini expansion that kind of tightened up the gameplay even more, it's just... I mean, the game has a very small, devoted following, and I count myself among them, but it deserves so much more love because it is a sharp, sharp design, Destination Neptune. And, uh, hey, while we're talking about sharp designs, how about Dingo's Dreams with awesome art from the ever-wonderful Ryan Lockett. This is from Red Raven Games and designed from Alf Siegert. These two have collaborated many times over the years, and this is one of the best Domino, or no, I'm sorry, not Domino, Bingo-inspired games out there. And by Bingo, I mean, hey, every round there's a random seed that everybody takes and everybody does their own version of it on their own board. This one, interestingly, that seed is a sliding puzzle that everybody slides into their own puzzle. And um, normally I hate sliding puzzle-based games, but this one works so well. You, and if you want to try it for yourself, don't take my word for it, go watch my run-through. We did it in such a way that you can play along at home. Oh, wait, no, no, no. Is that true? No, I did it that... A live audience did play along at home. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to play along at home. But still, you can go watch a three-player game with me, Jen, and the internet showing uh, three different strategies that shows even with just the single random seed, there's so much variation. Dingo's Dream deserves better, I think. As does Yohari, or Johari, which is a very, very cool... You know, it's interesting. I I know, should I? No, 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 I was going to say, I thought, I was going to say this one's getting a reprint, but it's not. It's, um... Oh, Jaipur. And here's the thing. Jaipur, I think, does get a lot of love and a lot of attention as a really great couples game set in... I'm not quite sure where the ancient market is, you know, uh, you know, in the Arabic world or the Asian world that Jaipur or Johari is. These both have the same type setting. And while Jaipur just really blew up, Johari just seemed to be forgotten, which is shocking because, oh, I mean, the designer of it is... Uh, hold on. Let me look it up again. Let me. I don't want to get the name wrong. Joe Hari, come on, come on, Board Game Geek. You can do it, Board Game Geek. All right. Uh, right. Oh, oh. It's um, Carlo Levisi. Carlo Levisi. Uh, you know, he's done a few games. I've only played two of them, and I thought they were both fantastic. Yohari and Oddville. Uh, so I don't know. I mean, uh, this is a. I mean, he nowhere. He, he's Carlo is nowhere close to having the volume of Steve Finn, but Oddville is a really brilliant little. Uh, I mean, so I, I could have mentioned either of these, but I did want to kind of give Carlo his due. He is out there putting out really sharp designs and Legend Dice. If you, if this ever gets published, it's his next upcoming game. I, I expect great things from it because Yohari and Oddville are both fantastic and deserve more love than they got in this lifetime. Um, but if we continue on. Uh, uh, we have Kashgar, Merchants of the Silk Road, and I didn't put this one on solely because it eventually did get reprinted 
from a, another publisher, because this is another one, like in my, in my five years ago, I did my top 10 overrated games, and I mentioned Legends of Andor, which a lot of people had a problem with, but I said, no, 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 audiences understood how great Andor was, the publisher didn't, because uh, Fantasy Flight Games just never put out any of the expansion content. I kind of felt the same way about Kashgar, which is such an amazingly brilliant design. It's a deck builder where you're building three decks at once and trying to get them to sync up. Incredible! And uh, the publisher, Cosmos, seemed to have no interest in pushing it. Only ever put it out in German. It was impossible to get. If uh, you know, It had a lot of text. And eventually, it did get picked up by another publisher and put out in English. So because of that, I figured, okay, I guess maybe that means it's getting enough love if, it, if another publisher came along and picked it up. But still... I don't know if it did, because it seems like nobody's talking about it. But I didn't put it on the list solely because I think maybe it's gotten the love it should. But I'm not sure, because, oh man, I mean, this game uh, you know, is a top 10 of the year. And, I mean, from that, it should be shouted from the mountaintops. It should have gotten the uh, Kennerspiel uh, nomination the year it came out. It, it, it is not... I, you know, commiserate to how good it is, Kashgar has... There's no way it's gotten the love it deserves. But again, I didn't put it on the list because it did at least get a reprint. After that, there's Peleponese the Card Game. And this one is heartbreaking because Peleponese is in my top 10 games of all time. And if Peleponese the Card Game ever gets as much expansion content as Peleponese has, it'll probably push its way in and bump Peleponese out because, if anything, it's an even better design. And yet, nobody seems to know about it. It's just totally fallen off the edge of the planet. And that is a real shame, because it is such a brilliant prehistory civilization-building game uh, with tons and tons of tension. I do worry that this is another case where Tom Vassell's early review probably doomed it, because he really kind of ripped it apart again. And again, I personally think very unfairly, uh, because Jen, I mean, it's, it's, it's a phenomenal game. Really, really sharp. And captured the essence of Peloponnese while, you know, distilling it, you know, taking all the boards out for tracking and whatnot, you know, bringing everything down into just a collection of cards in a really, really smart way and deserved more love. Peloponnese, the card game. Then there's Rattle Battle Grab the Loot. And ultimately, as much as Jen and I love it, we just think it's charming as all get out. I guess I understand why this didn't catch on because I, I complained about this in my run through. As brilliant as the core mechanism, the gimmick of this game is, it's uh, pirate battles where everybody's uh, you know cool custom dice represent pirate ships. You drop them all into the box lid, and the way they spread around determines how a uh, naval battle will play out. It's brilliant, but the game does run on too long, and it's a real shame that Publisher Portal, you know, Publisher Portal, has never. I think there are definitely rules variants that they could come up with that would fix the only issue with the game that. It overstays its welcome. Because it does have that problem, and in an otherwise absolutely superlative design, I didn't put it on the list, but I, it's, oh, it is such a sweet little gem. So shamed. It's such a shame that it does not get more love. Rattle Battle Grab the Loot. And then a more recent one, a neat little card game called Raxon, which is actually, interestingly, a spinoff from the Dead of Winter universe, although I don't think anybody realizes that. Apparently, Raxon was the company that caused the zombie outbreak that you know, leads to Dead of Winter's apocalyptic landscape that you play through. 
And uh, this game is a very... It, it's not a big adventure narrative-driven game like Dead of Winter. It's a, it's a weird, puzzly little card game where you, there are a bunch of fugitives from the zombie apocalypse trying to get through a checkpoint, and we are charged with making sure only humans get through and not zombies. Because you can't tell when you're just looking at a big sea of people who's the zombie and who's the human. And we're calling in airstrikes, taking out portions of this grid of cards, and... It was really smart, very clever and puzzly. I liked it quite a bit. And I don't know why it didn't catch on. I mean, I, I do wonder if they buried the lead too much. Um, you know, because they really should have played up the fact, hey, this is your next Dead of Winter experience. And it's weird. Actually, the game had a very funky viral marketing campaign where they did not put it in retail. I mean, I so love this. this, this here's the idea. A few key people. I don't know, there were probably people taken from the publisher's mailing list because they were diehard Dead of Winter fans. Got the game. Um, you know, in the mail. And it's like they were patient zero. They were the first that were bit and turned into zombies. And then they could issue invites to other people. Each player who has it could invite five other people, and then those people would have the opportunity to buy the game and get it sent to them. And this was the only way you could get the game for like the first half a year of its existence is through word of mouth. And I remember on Board Game Geek, there were all people, how can I get this game? Is there anybody out there who's willing to bite me because I want to become a zombie and help spread the viral infection of this game? I actually love that. And, you know... It seemed like, though, that it kind of backfired on them because there were a lot of people who were pissed off they were doing this rather than just making it for sale. And maybe that sowed more dissent than excitement. I thought it was cool and it had a great sense of humor and it was really neat and thematic. Uh, you know, and, and they really went overboard. You know, The people who were playing it, they were able to watch like on this global map the viral spread, which represented other people in different countries getting the game and all that. Really neat. And all that aside, the game itself is sharp. And yet... Nobody remembers it. It's totally forgotten now. Uh, Maybe undone by the gimmick of its marketing. I'm not sure. But Raxon, R-A-X-X-O-N, deserved more. Deserved better, I think. Then... There is Riverboat from uh, Michael Kiesling. And oh man, Michael Kiesling and uh, his partner, uh, Matthias Kramer, had a great year in 2017. Three big games um, that Kiesling was involved with. This, uh, was it Riverboat? And Reworld and Heaven and Ale. And Heaven and Ale is the only one anybody remembers uh, because it got the Kenner Spiel. Was it, did it win or did it just get the nomination? I don't remember. But anyway, all the attention went to that. And Poor Riverboat, which was, as far as I'm concerned, infinitely superior, was the much, 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 much better game. Uh, it's interesting. Both Heaven and Ale and Riverboat, uh, you know, uh, orbit around the concept of uh, hex, hexagonal tile laying, but they both did it in very, very different ways. Uh, you know, so they kind of had the same core DNA, but very, very different games, and Riverboat was so brilliant. Well, it made my top 10 of the year, and Heaven and Ale did not. Uh, but because Heaven and Ale got so much attention, everybody kind of forgot about Riverboat, which is a shame, because as far as I was concerned, it was the better game, the more worthy design, and definitely underrated. And the only reason it didn't make my list is because I kind of feel like in the back of my mind, maybe I'm not being fair, and it did get more love, it did get more attention, but it doesn't feel to me like it did, because it was so good. And I don't remember very many other people shouting from the rooftops like I did just how amazing it was. Whereas everybody still raves about Heaven and Ale to this day. And I'm like, ah, that's nice. But if you played Riverboat? Anyway, so that... Uh, and then we move on to Steam Time. Which, I think, 
No, no, no. I was going to say it's the latest game from Rudiger Dorn. You know, one of the most respected all-time board game Euro designers of all time because of Goa and other really big games. And Steam Time was a big, a new big box Cosmos title from him that just completely flew right off the radar. And nobody remembers it. And it's a shame because it's a really, really clever time blimp game. Um, you know, it, it borrows the same kind of gameplay as... Agizia and some other games where uh, we're constantly, because it, we're moving through the time stream, which means we're constantly moving forward to draft more cards. And once we move forward on the time stream, which represents this board of all the cards we can get, we can never go backwards because you can't reverse time or something like that. I forget what the thematic explanation was. But the important thing was it made for an incredibly tense and fun engine building card drafting game. That, again, just fell completely off the radar. And I don't know why. It had great components. It certainly had great designer pedigree. But have you heard of Steam Time? Maybe because you watched my run-through of it years ago. But it is a really good game. Definitely overlooked. Then, there is... Oh, it's so sad that nobody remembers Swingin' Jive Cat Voodoo Lounge. With a title like that, how could you forget it? Such a clever area control game. And that's a big deal because area control, generally not Jen's and my thing, and generally not something that works well with two players. But this game succeeded by both those metrics. And its board is so joyful. Uh, it just puts a smile on your face. And the... the um, Oh, the components that come with this game. It's just... Go watch my run-through of it. It's amazing. This game comes with martini glasses and little um, monkeys that you hang off the martini glass to keep track of your score. It's 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 absolutely bonkers insane, but in the best way. And the gameplay is really sharp, too. But, you know, it just came and went. Nobody remembers Swingin' Jive Cat Voodoo Lounge. And finally, I, I, I would be remiss not mentioning Ulm which was another one that made my top 10 of the year. And like Riverboat, I thought hard about putting it on, and ultimately I decided not to, because I feel like maybe more people know about it than I think do. But again, I feel like if everybody knew how amazing this game was, it would be a much bigger deal. People would... I mean, there would be more people talking about how it made the top 10 of the year. So, I, I stand by. This is definitely underrated. I mean, one of the coolest action selection action selection mechanisms to come along in the last five years. Easily, just absolutely blows everything else away in turn, you know, this, again, well, it's interesting, I mentioned this earlier, sliding puzzle that you slide an action in, another action slides out, that triggers what actions you can do on a given round. Just so sharp. Brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, another great board, too, by, um, oh, not Michael Kiesling. The one of the greatest game board artists of all time. Oh man, I am losing it. I cannot think of anybody's name. What is his name? Let's just look really quick. Oh yeah, Michael Menzel. Menzel, a great board from Menzel. Great gameplay. Just everything about almost fantastic. And that is why it is sadly overlooked. And like I said, I could keep going, but I'm going to stop right there, folks, because it is time to get to some questions and some answers. Although, uh, for, unfortunately, for the first half, I'll be flying solo um, for the game-related stuff. But Jen will join me in the end for the personal stuff. So if you hang on, we'll be right back where I can uh, let you know what I think of your questions.
Okie dokie, everybody. Time for questions and answers. And as always, I am just spitballing it, um, making it up as I go along. I probably should really do some research beforehand, but I like to be spontaneous. And so let's get going. Right. Dan asks about the best two-player scaling. Can I name a couple of games that really implemented the best or cleverest player scaling to make a game that shines with three or four work well with two? Dan's a fledgling game designer and sometimes struggles with this. He'd love to get hands on some great examples. Alrighty. And see, this is why I should actually do some studying ahead of time. That is something... Oh, man. All right, let's see. I will go to ranked.rado.com. Ranked dotrado.com to look at my top 300 or 400 or so games. And I'll just start at the top. Let's see. Oh, yeah, Pandemic. Pandemic is a fantastic example because it's interesting. Um, for, for, for an adventure game, for a cooperative game like Pandemic, where at a higher player count that you know the game might be scaled to ensure that oh you need all four players to cover all the quadrants of the board to make sure that all the threats are being dealt with. A not uncommon choice for a developer to do might be, oh, well, in a two-player game, let's just cut down the size of the world. So if it took four players to cover this big world, it'd only take two players to cover this small world. And I don't really think that's the best way to go, necessarily, um, because... What Pandemic does in d- instead is, it says, well, hey, let's just leave the world just as big and make um, each player in a two-player game the equivalent in terms of power of a four-player game. Uh, because, well, all you have to do in Pandemic is just give you give each player a larger hand of starting cards. Because this is basically a set collection game where everybody's just trying to get the right cards in their hand at the right time to cure these diseases. And it is so empowering. I gotta say, it is hard for me and Jen to try to play Pandemic is a three or four player game because you only start out with what two cards in your hand um, you know and so you, you have the you know the cards spread out amongst all the players whereas in pandemic we have nice big chunky four is it four or five I'd have to go back and look but you, you get the idea and so you know it's just so freeing in pandemic as a two player game just to start off you're like I can do anything I got all this stuff and um, it's such a different experience it's interesting like I would have a hard time playing at the higher player count and I bet you for people who are used to playing only at the higher player count they would say oh my gosh I start out with so many cards in a two player this just feels wrong but the, th- the brilliant thing about pandemic is both approaches work so well and that's a big part of Matt Leacock's genius that he was able to find that um you know, thread that needle. So that's a really interesting example, I think. Let's see, what else? What else? Agricola is a worker placement game, and that is certainly interesting in that, well, as is often the case for worker placement games, the more players, they just ensure there are more worker placement spots to have. Now, most games, what they do is they say, hey, you know, we really designed this for a higher player count. And then at the lower player count, we just block off spaces. You see this on the majority of worker placement games out there, actually. And it always kind of sends a subtle message to players that, yeah, you know what? You're not playing this right. Because look at all the stuff you don't get to do. Look at all the options that aren't available to you because we've tightened up the board. Don't get me wrong. Mechanically, it's a good thing to do. But I love the approach Agricola took, which is, no, 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 no. If you're playing the two-player game, all the basic stuff is here. And if you want to play at a higher player count, there are extra cards that you add that it basically increase the size of the board. And I think that is such a smart way to go. It, you know, it's, it's another way to skin the same cat. But it means that 
You know, psychologically, if you're playing at a higher player count, you feel like, oh, look at all this extra stuff we get. This is cool. This is exciting. And, um, you know, as opposed to the standard way where two players are like, oh, I don't get all the cool stuff. All the stuff is turned off. I'm really appreciative of that, and I, and I applaud Uwe Rosenberg for going that way. Uh, let's see here. Twa. Um, you know, I'm, hell, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, heck, I'm sorry. I try to keep my show clean. But heck, I say. Um... Twa is a great example. And it's, you know, uh, Dan, if you're a fledgling designer, the best way, the absolute best way you can deal with this discrepancy between the experience you get at a higher and lower player count, when chances are you designed it really at at its core to work better at a higher player count, is to introduce dummy players. This notion of some kind of game-run system that emulates the functionality of another human player. And here's the thing. If you pursue this, you will find a lot of people who vehemently despise it. You know, in, 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 in my opinion, in a completely unreasonable way. Because I, Jen and I, we love a good dummy player. And so if you're going to do it, look to Twa. Because I think it does it in a way that nobody seems to mind. Because the, the big problem with doing... I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not a big problem. I think it's great. But where you'll get pushback if you implement uh, some system that replicates a third player to you know to tighten up the experience, to replicate a higher player count at lower player count, is the bookkeeping, the maintenance that players have to do. If players have to make decisions on behalf of a dummy player, that, that really turns off a sizable portion of the market. What Twa does is... Well, Twa is a, a dice drafting game where no matter the player count, everybody gets a certain number of dice. At the beginning of a round, they all roll it, and then this becomes a bundle of dice they can use, or they can buy dice from other players and stuff like that. And the only difference they do uh, at a two-player game is they say, hey, you know what? When I roll my bundle of dice and you roll your bundle of dice, just roll a third bundle of dice and put it over there on the side. You could think of that as replicating the function of a third player who would also roll their dice, but it's not. Players don't seem to mind. It's just like, oh, there's a neutral supply. And nobody says, ah, it's a dummy player. I hate this. They'd say, oh, there's just extra dice here. So that's a really great way, maybe one of the best ways to implement dummy players that people don't seem to have just this really kind of violent gut reaction to. So that's definitely worth checking out. Um, uh, Burgundy just uh, does the standard tightening by limiting you. Uh, Nations, the same thing. I'm literally just going through my top ten. And, uh, yeah, any more interesting... Well, you know, Seven Wonders, as much as I love it, I think Seven Wonders is an example of what not to do because it has a dummy player, but a very rich and elaborate dummy player that Jen and I love. We think Seven Wonders is best as a two-player game because of the dummy player, which creates so much more depth and complexity to the experience, but so many people despise buys it. So, if nothing else, it's a good idea to look at that as an example of what not to do. Especially since you could then look at um, other games uh, that do drafting, that uh, you know implement that third player in a much better way. There is something called the Entwife variant, which was a variant that was created for Among the Stars. And Among the Stars did the Seven Wonders thing originally. Because, you know, drafting games are interesting in that you want a bunch of people around the table, so these hands of cards keep going around, and it's a bit more unpredictable and surprising, and, oh my gosh, I can't believe this card made it back to me. It's more, more, it's, it's more interactive and just fun, the more players are involved with a, with a card draft. But in two players, oh, I give you cards, and then I hand them back. And so, 
Uh, in the early days, Seven Wonders and Among the Stars, they said, oh, let's just uh, implement dummy players who are also uh, you know, part of this process. And again, uh, people just really you know, did not care for that. But then there was a user on BoardGameGeek who suggested, hey, here's an alternate way to do card drafting for the two-player of Among the Stars. And it was so good that publisher... Artipia, when they did reprints of Among the Stars later on, they said, okay, we are officially using the Entwife variant. And I have now, since then, seen the Entwife variant used in a lot of card drafting games. And again, it's a really good example of how to implement a the, you know, the, the extra variability that other players bring through a dummy player without creating any extra overhead that would turn people off of your game. So there's some interesting stuff to look at. I could keep going, Dan, but uh, I got other questions asked. So hopefully that gives you a, a little bit to think about. And also, Dan, I would strongly suggest going to faq.rado.com and checking out question. Let's see, where is it? I've got my list of questions. Oh, all right, where I got a uh, question number twenty. Because I will send you to a forum, Dan, where all of your designer questions will be answered. So go to faq.rado.com number twenty. Okay, moving right along to Cohen, who uh, says he knows I mostly play two-player, but imagine I'm stranded on an island. I survived the destruction of the world, and I have no other games to no other games to play with. Which top three games would I like to have a solid? Oh, so Jen didn't survive. I was going to suggest I recently did a games to survive the apocalypse an appearance on a podcast called Games for the Apocalypse or something like that. But you're saying I'm truly alone. Wow. Um, well, actually, no, not wow. This is easy. Uh, I've already done a top 10 solo games, uh, so go check that out. Or you know what? This very next month in July, it's solo summer. Every game I'm going to cover is solo, so I'll probably come up with some new favorite solo games of all time. Um, but anyway, yeah, like I said, go check out my top 10 solo games, which I co-did with another big fan of solo games. You'll get a lot of ideas there. Gerald wonders, what is my definition of depth? What makes a game deep? And what makes a game shallow? Actually, Gerald, I did a geek list on this many, many years ago. Depth versus complexity. Let me see if I can find it. Rado depth complexity. Let's see if that brings it up. Uh, Uh, No, I I see. That brings up some uh, thread somebody else did based off my old geek list. Rado depth complexity geek list. Oh, come on. Man, everybody copying my thing, but not my original. Let's see. Well, will one of these take it? Weight, death versus complexity, result in analysis based on Rado's old list. Um, yeah. You talked about it. Is there a link in here, Tony? Oh, for heaven's sakes. All right. I'll find it the old-fashioned way. I'll have to look at every geek list I've ever created. I can't believe this is so hard to find. Um, I mean, long story short, I feel like I've covered this there, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on it now, but I thought this would be really easy to find, and Google is 100%. Let's see, let's just do Rado Geek List Game Weight. Will that bring it up? I don't need videos. I don't need this poll from Tony based on my thing, and he didn't actually do a link to my original thing. Oh, man, this is ridiculous. Um... Uh, how to wait? Depth complexity. 
This is a terrible podcast to listen to. Oh, man, this stupid poll has just taken over everything. Uh, I tell you what, Gerald, ask me this at guild.rada.com, and I'll find the actual link and put it in. Oh, man, that was frustrating. This should have been really easy. Google totally failed. Um, But I'm going to move along, Gerald, because we can talk about it more after you check out that old list. Okay, Jared says, or Jared notes that my rating for Carpe Diem has significantly dropped. What changed? Uh, Actually... Uh, you've probably by now, Jared, seen my top ga- 10 games of 2018 re-revisit. If you haven't, let's see if this Google search doesn't fail. Rado, 2018 re-revisit. Okay, that, that will bring you to the video where that very question is answered in great detail. Continuing on. CO2 has been replaced by Kanban as my favorite Lasarda game. Does that have something to do with the new edition? What are your thoughts on the luck and co-op versus competitive? Um, yeah. We played the co-op of the new edition, and I thought it was pretty cool. And I think I mentioned this in the video. Jen did not grok it. at. No, she grokked it. She just hated it because it was one of those examples of a co-op game that was just too high stress. She really did not enjoy it. And... Um, you know, Vital made some changes to. I mean, you know, the the original co- co- um, semi co op version was there, and I understood why he made the changes to the way scientist works, and I do believe the changes he made to the semi-cooperative version of the game, since the, co- the true co-op Jen just wasn't keen on, the changes he made to the way scientists work, I think make the game a, a better game overall. But I do think, because they addressed an issue where some people just fundamentally played the game wrong. And they did not engage in interaction in the way that they could. You know, they kind of uh, fell into groupthink patterns, and so... Vital tried to address that by tweaking the way the design worked. And the new design works fine. But when we ultimately did get the final version, I think, I think, I think, I preferred the original CO2 better. Again, I I would almost say it's the new one is objectively superior. Maybe it's just nostalgia that we um, originally, you know, liked the old CO2 better. But yeah, I mean, the whole thing just kind of got muddy in my head. And at the same time, the new version of Kanban came out and we played that and we're like, oh my god, this is so amazing. Here's the thing. I've I've mentioned this before. I'll mention it again. The more I get to play a game, the more it tends to rise in my estimation. I know this is kind of counterintuitive for most people. The more they play a game, the more they start seeing holes and the more they don't like it. For me, it's the the more I play it, the more excited I get. And the more we played Kanban, Kanban just kind of rose at the same time that CO2 kind of got a little bit muddy. Um, I mean, I, I totally respect uh, Vital for going back and just trying to kind of George Lucas special edition his games. Uh, you know, I mean, he did the same thing for Vinos as well. And like I said, I really miss the, I, I really regret him cutting the banking, that, which to me was always the heart of Vinos. I mean, most people wouldn't agree, but to me, v, banking was the coolest thing about Vinos. And he, you know, he keeps going back and changing these things for his second editions. It's cool, but I don't know. I kind of like his first tries. Anyway, though, so that's kind of how, how those came about. 
Thomas says, I've been a longtime watcher, and his board game-related question is, he's recently hit a wall with his collection and found that he just can't get many of the older titles to the table. I feel your pain, Thomas, especially considering what I just revealed, how the more I get to play a game, the better it becomes. Have you had similar problems with your large collection, and are you? how do you decide uh, keeping and selling games? I've had the same problem, but not for the reason you have. If I weren't doing Rotto Runs Through, honestly, I just think I just don't understand how people have this problem. I've got close to 400 games in my collection. I, it would not be a problem for me. I would just say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to play. I mean, I, I would. My simple approach would be, I will not play. Um, I, I will not play a game more than twice until I've played every game in my collection. So once I've played. I'm just looking around randomly. Once I have played Progress, Evolution, and Technology twice within a couple of weeks, okay, that's it. It's going on the, sh- on the shelf, and I am not allowed to play this game again until every other game on my shelves has been played twice. And that means every couple of years, I'll get Praetor out, or Progress out, and I'll play it a few times, and I'll be like, yeah, man, I really love this game. And I'll leave it while I'm still loving it. And, uh, and I'll put it away, and then it'll stay away for a couple more years, because, you know, with 400 games, it'll take a while to go through them all. That is how I would approach it if I were a normal person. I'm not, so I don't get to. Um, but to your other question of how do you decide keeping selling games, it's just a one-to-one comparison. Uh, you know, every game, uh, if I had to keep this one or this one, which would I keep? I have to pick one of them. Um, you know, the house is on fire, and I just make the decision. Often it's based on, do I have, you know, hey, you know what, this game might objectively be superior, but it functions, it, it does things that this other game I have does, and so I'm going to get rid of it. I recently got rid of several bingo-style games, and I just kept one. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier, Dingo's Dreams, very sad that it was overlooked. I think it's great, but still, I got rid of Dingo's Dreams because, oh, which one did I keep? I got rid of several bingo games all at the same time, uh, including Dingo's Dreams and uh, Rise of Augustus. And, oh man, I can't think of them all now because I kept one that I thought, okay, if I'm going to play a bingo game, it'll be this one and only this one. Karuba was another one I got rid of. I cannot think of the one I kept. That's crazy. But, you know, often it's, it's just, you know, A, B until, um, you know, until you, you, you find what makes sense. But uh, moving right along, Peter says, welcome, or hello from London. If I ever had my own convention, a RottoCon, if you will, what kind of things would I have? Tables where people can only play two-player games, a library of games that I've rated highly so people can stop emailing me with what I think of Game X, a doggy daycare center on site. I think those are all excellent suggestions. And they're better than anything I could come up with because, in all honesty, the idea of, of having a convention in my name just gives me just makes me shudder. Ah! I don't know if you ever noticed. People don't seem to notice this. The thumbnails I create for all of my run-throughs my face is not on them, and that doesn't help me. I mean, it, it, I would be much better for my uh, viral nature of my videos if I put pictures of myself giving thumbs up or thumbs down or you know, doing that outline that a lot of people do because people respond to a human connection, and the more they see that, the more likely they are to look at it because, oh, I like the look of that guy. I want to see what he has to say, even if I don't care about the game. And I have always tried to downplay myself right from the get-go because it's all about the game. I want my entire channel to be about the games, not about me. And so the idea of an actual convention, 
about me. It just feels way too cult of personality-ish. And I know it wouldn't be. It would just be a celebration of games from people who are just fans of the show. And I totally get that, but it doesn't mean I wouldn't be comfortable with it necessarily. So I, I'm afraid I do not have perfectly valid questions, but I, and I like your answers, Peter. So we'll just stop there. You, uh, Peter also knows, I primarily play with Jen, but there are many other memorable instances where someone else has taught... But are there memorable instances where someone else has taught a game to me incredibly well or incredibly badly? I imagine the latter is more memorable for the wrong reasons. Probably. Nothing pops to mind. I mean, 99% of all games I play, I, I learn myself and teach Jen. And teaching Jen is a big part of how I learn it myself, in all honesty. Um, best way to learn how to do something is try to teach it to somebody else. I think that's an old axiom for teachers. Um, gosh, 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 gosh. Nothing really pops to mind. I mean, just in general, I really struggle learning games from other people. Because I try to be polite and I try not to interrupt, but I have questions. And if I don't get those questions answered immediately, they just rattle around my head. And then suddenly I cannot hear what the rules explainer is thinking of anymore because they didn't happen to touch on the one thing that to me means, okay, if I don't have the answer to this one thing, I cannot internalize anything else you're telling me. But if I interrupt you to ask that question, I know it's rude and I know it'll be annoying and I know you'll say, well, I'm about to get to that. So honestly, I kind of hate being taught games. I would much rather just teach them to myself, even though it's a royal pain in the butt. But yeah, so I'm afraid I do not have any interesting good stories. I should, but I don't. Moving on to Alex. Wonders, in my opinion, according to my taste, what creates the greatest tension in games? The greatest tension. What is the source of great tension? Well, I assume you mean by greatest, you mean largest, you know, uh, most impactful. But I'm going to answer your question instead, meaning greatest and in my favorite, the bestest way. Um, because the greatest by that time, my favorite tension is the tension I feel when I'm playing a big, robust, complex game with a million moving parts and I have figured out what I want to do for my next three turns. And I can see it. I can see it plain as day. If I do X, then Y, then Z, it will be amazing. It will be game-changing. And I am so tense because it's going to take me three turns to do X, and then Y, and then Z. And if you do certain things... I can't do Y anymore. And then I got to rethink everything. And so I am sitting there in my chair. Jen will confirm. If Jen were here, she would confirm this right now. I would literally bounce in my chair. My legs start twitching because I can't wait for my turn to come because I'm so tense. Will I be able to pull it off? That is my favorite form of tension, which means it's the greatest tension. You probably mean, though, what is the, what is the, oh, and, and heck, maybe it is. Maybe that is a stronger feeling of tension than anything else because it's a tension that's outside of my control. Um, you know, and that's, that makes it more frightening and more terrifying because the best I can do is just try to anticipate if it's really important for me to pull this off, I have to anticipate what is it that you're going to do so that I can judge what my likelihood is being able to do what I want to do. And, you know, and that's, that's where the fun of the game is because it's about interacting with other players without having to destroy them. Instead, that's a form of interaction, just trying to get into their heads. So that's going to be my answer. Hopefully, Alex, you'll like it. Moving right along to Bear. Bear says, why, or Bear asks, why do I think board games are fun? Ah, uh, this is a shame. It, you know, I, I didn't mention right up front. Jen can't be here. Jen's in the UK right now. You'll hear a lot more about this 
in the next segment when Jen's actually here because I recorded this before. I recorded this a couple days ago because Jen had to get on a plane and go to the UK. And we talked about will there be time for us to for her to do the the personal Q&A plus the game Q&A, and we just didn't run out. We ran out of time. We thought we would have time, but then Jen said, you know what? we got to leave in an hour and a half, and I have spent no time with my beagles today, and I'm not going to see them for a month. So, yeah, I think I need to go uh, cuddle with them on the couch instead of an- instead of sit here and not answer nine out of ten questions on the off chance that Bear's excellent question would come up. Because I would love to hear Jen's answer to what makes board game fun. Is it exercising the brain? Is it completing a pattern? Is it solving a problem within boundary of rules? Why is any of this fun at all? Is it play pretending for adults? Why is moving small parts on a board fun? Why? Why is it fun? That's a good question. Um, And I would so love to hear Jen's answer to it. Actually, you know what? I'm going to be a jerk and say, please send that question again um, so that when we next do Q&A, Jen will be here, and I want, I, and I'll answer, and I'll hear her answer as well. But in the meantime, let's see what was your other question. I wasn't going to ask this, since you're answering for questions. I guess you have time to think about it, and here it is. Uh, I'm not offended if you don't want to answer this. Well, what could it be? I've been involved in some BGG discussions in the past where a designer has a strong fan following, a subset of which is all too quick in rising to their defense. I've even had people send me personal messages letting me know they didn't dare voice their opinion in the ongoing discussion because they felt these fans were too aggressive in their comments. I felt at the time that this these designers do not do enough to discourage this behavior from some of their fans. In fact, sometimes they'll join in. Have you ever noticed like, something like this happening? You know what? I think that is a good question. I'm glad you asked, Bear. Um, I'll be honest. I've seen it happening in guild.rado.com, and I'm kind of ashamed of it. I and I th- and I and I feel bad about it. The thing is, there have occasionally been quasi trollish people. But I mean, I know from their perspective they don't think of themselves as trolls. They just think of themselves as truth speakers and truth seekers and they're going to, you know, I don't know, apply truth to power and whatever. You know, they they've got their agenda they want to pursue and from my perspective they're just a royal pain in the butt, but from their perspective they're just doing God's work, trying to to shine a flashlight on the underbelly of Rado runs through as an enterprise or whatever it might be. And you know, they in the past they might come to guild at rado.com and they might even in good faith say, "Hey, you know what? Here's my concern. Here's what I don't like. Here's my problem." And I will try my best to engage them and give my perspective and all of that. But there will be fans of the show who are much quicker to get more aggressive. Exactly what you're talking about. Kind of have this aggressive, dismissive, hey, if you don't like it, lump it, pal. Beat it. Nobody asked your opinion. I'm like, and I have to admit, from my perspective, it's like, oh, they're saying what I want to say. They really are. And why am why should I be responsible for other people? Because because uh, it gives me the freedom to say, oh, these fans of mine, they're you know you know they're they're being white knights protecting me. I don't have to say what I'm really thinking because I just want this guy to shut the hell up and leave me alone and stop making me miserable. 
And so I get, I got cover because then, oh, I can just take the high road. And I, I remember I've actually done this. I remember when this, I don't remember what thread it was. It's on guild.rado.com. Somebody was pursuing some agenda. I don't remember what it was at all. But I was just saying, hey, look, forget about everybody else. It's just you and me talking. And, uh, you know, and I'm trying to get to the bottom of what you do. But in secretly in my heart of hearts, I'm like, I'm glad somebody else is saying what I'm thinking. That this guy's just a dick and I wish he'd shut up. Um, but I, since they're saying it for me, I don't have to say it. And that was bad on me. Because he eventually said, well, you know what? I'm surrounded by all these rodites. This is a miserable experience. I, 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 I'm just going to leave. And, I, and at the time, I'm like, oh, good. Thank you. Uh, but whereas I got to take the high road, I was not taking the high road. And it should have been incumbent on me as the effective de facto leader of that group of people to say, hey, guys, come on. Let's be cool. We don't all have to agree, but we can all agree we love board games, right? And I should have done it. And I'm ashamed that I didn't. And... Still, I don't know how I would handle it. I mean, because sometimes I just wish people would tell people to shut up when they're making me literally miserable. But I, I, I got to take the high road. And that high road doesn't mean just my own personal thing. Because I do think if somebody's speaking on my behalf and I am silent, then I am tacitly endorsing their behavior. And that's not cool. And that was bad on me. And so, to your original question, I, I hopefully that answers the question, Bear. I think when designers do that or publishers do that, it's bad on them too. And I say that because I have been guilty of it in the past. Let me see. If someone invokes my name in a forum discussion, I feel obliged to make sure the discussion is civil. At the same time, moderation of the forum is not really a designer responsibility on BGG. Do you think designers and publishers have a responsibility to try to moderate um, to a degree any excessive behavior from their fans on BGG when these fans justify their posts in a defense of the designer they think is under attack? Well, okay. I should have read the rest of your paragraph because I inadvertently answered your full question. Hopefully I answered your question. Yes, I do believe that is the case. I do believe there is a responsibility for um, for them to be the calming influence and use their power. Um, you know, Because with great power comes great responsibility. And I have not done so in the past. And it is something, it is a lesson I carry with me now. So yes, I agree with you. That is the right thing to do. At the same time, we're all human. And sometimes it is very, very hard to do that. Okay. Lewis says... He's recently discovered the excellent Warsaw City of Ruins, previously known as Capitals. I do think Warsaw City of Ruins is a much better title. Uh, that was me. That was my um, editorializing there. But anyway, I recently discovered the excellent Warsaw City of Ruins through another podcast. What? I talked about it. But anyway, and after some research, realized the game received very little coverage since launch. Surprising for such an excellent game. Then, a game like Tiny Town arrives, and you see dozens of video reviews appearing at the same time. Designer Diaries, entries on BGG, the designer all over Twitter even answering questions. How can two similarly excellent games get reactions that are so different? Is it simply that AEG and Tiny Town's designers put exceptional effort in marketing? Answer, yes. Um, but... That, uh, but then, don't all publishers do the same? Sending mini-review copies, publishing on BGG, uh, having the designer answer questions, etc.? Answer, no, they do not. What do you think can explain the success or failure in generating hype for the game? Um, AEG has a marketing department. Uh, they, they have people whose sole job is to ensure that word gets out in their game. And I, it is shocking to me, absolutely 
mind-blowing how little the majority of board game publishers in the industry pay to public relations, to PR, to doing the work that you're talking about. Most publishers seem happy to just put the game out and say, we'll let the game speak for itself. Um, because anybody, you know, the designer doesn't have to be invited. Any you know, Designers can do designer diaries and can be all over Twitter and can do AMAs on Reddit or BoardGameGeek for that matter and can be really, I mean, every designer and every publisher should subscribe to their own game on BoardGameGeek, which means they will get a notice whenever anybody creates a new thread, has a new question, and they should sweep in, swoop in immediately within an hour, 24 hours a day, and answer those questions and prove to anybody who comes along to that forum later that, oh, this game is loved and supported by the people who made it. And yet no publisher, almost no publisher does this. Almost no designer does this. And it is shocking to me. You wonder why uh, did Tiny Town get so much love and Warsaw didn't. And it reflects the amount of work that... AEG, the amount of effort AEG puts into this versus Grana, the publisher of Warsaw. And it's not like, uh, you know, they aren't really smart people at Grana. And it's not like they don't actually do work at it. I have seen Grana has really, really cool booths at um, Essen Spiel every year. They clearly spend a lot of money trying to make a, a big inviting thing for to get people excited about their games. But they don't seem to do all the work that's um, that costs them nothing, of you know being much more aggressive in a good way, and getting the word out there, doing the word of mouth and whatnot. Um, the reason, by the way, Tiny Towns had that big massive release. That was AEG sending hey, saying to all those reviewers, "Hey, we will send you a review copy of our game, and we will get it to you three months ahead of time. And all we ask is you hold your review until this day." They're not the first to do it. Several other publishers have done it. Every publisher could do it if they wanted. But it does require more legwork. It does require getting advanced copies of the game much earlier than is normally the case. And it does require a bigger investment of time and money. But yeah, Warsaw should have done that. Now, to be fair, the Warsaw would have a problem in that you know, Warsaw is always going to be more niche than Tiny Towns. Tiny Towns is a wonderful gateway game that can work for for hardcore players and total noobs. Um, whereas uh, Capitals or Warsaw is a deeper, richer game that's um, you know always going to have a more hardcore fan base. So I don't know that it would necessarily work as well, but they definitely should have done it. And again, uh, the the amount I mean, there is probably not a game that has come out in the last two years. From a from you know publishers of all sizes, where there isn't at least one or two threads on Board Game Geek that have po- been posted months ago, asking questions, and no publisher, no designer, no developer has gone on and answered those questions. And every time I see that, it blows my mind. I know those questions are there because I like the game, and therefore I subscribe to it. And sometimes I answer them myself, just because I really like the game. But it's not my job to. It is, the, it is the developers of these games' job to do that, and they just don't do it. It's shocking to me. And it just goes to show, the board game industry is very immature, in that it's in its nascent preteen stage. They haven't learned these lessons that um, bigger industries, like the video game industry or the television industry, are, are, you know, they have learned of how to cultivate an audience. But some publishers know it better than others. And that's a good question. I bet you, you would have a harder time on AEG titles finding unanswered threads. 
Although I guarantee you'll find them too. Find some smaller AEG game. Um, oh, what was that treasure game that came out that I did a run through for a couple of years ago? I bet you anything, there's going to be unanswered questions there. And the designers should have answered those questions and they didn't. Or the publisher should have answered those questions and they didn't. And it's appalling to me. Sorry, uh, not to go off on a rant there, but I just did. Thanks for the question, Lewis. Okay, Catherine says... Wonders if I could be tempted to Portland um, next May in 2020 because... All right. Oh, yes, I've heard of this. The... Um, oh, it's it's a convention being run by the makers of Exploding Kittens. Uh, Catherine didn't say the name of it. I will look up the name of it because I have heard of it. Oh, come on. Give me the name of the convention article about this thing. All right, maybe that's why Catherine didn't, because I don't see. I'm, but I've heard of this. There, it does have a, It has a silly burning. It's like Burning Cat instead of Burning Man or something like that. Um, no, Catherine, it does not. Uh, nothing against it, but you know, the the centerpiece of this game is definitely not a game for us. And honestly, Jen and I, we're really not that social. We like staying home and playing games. It's a lot of work to go out in public and play games with people and. You know, navigate the highways and byways of social interaction. We play games to be social with each other, not with other people. Not that we don't enjoy playing games with other people, but it's just so much easier to stay home and play in our nice comfy room with uh, Jen looking right out the window at all the chickens and the and the puppies at our feet. That, that can't be beat, uh, no matter how crazy and offbeat the convention might be. Okay, and yes, Catherine, I do remember. Yes, we did uh, of the the what was it Deluvia Project and Lorenzo. I would have not forgotten you and your crazy off grid living lifestyle. That would be a reason to go because I would love to sit and talk with you more about living off the grid because that's something that Jen and I like to talk about and fantasize about, but know that we're not strong enough to do. And maybe you could convince us otherwise. <laughs> anyway, moving right along uh, to Sukumar, who wonders, Doctor Sukumar says that his wife and he has finished their first game of Concordia and were a bit surprised to be underwhelmed. Having bought it a long time ago, I wanted to check what your final thoughts were and whether you and Jen had feeling the same way. Turns out, I was super excited by it, but Jen less so. At the time, Jen's reason seemed that it felt too dry. We've probably not played it since then. We have, actually, several times. And I wondered if you've ever discussed it again. I have. Go watch my follow-up video for Concordia... I forget what it's called. The, the, the England map? The UK map? Not the United... England map, probably? Um, yes, yeah, you promised it uh, in more points for Final Thoughts. Our general feeling was that it lacked tension to some other games, a similar complexity, Porto Negra and Zulkin being examples. Perhaps it proves that a higher player count... Improves. We found a two-player. Dude! Doctor! Go check out my um, my run-through or final thoughts or whatever I did. It was... I think it was the second expansion. Maybe it was the first one. It was the one that has England as a map. And that map is the one that made Jen fall in love with Concordia as much as I loved it. And it'll make you fall in love too. So go check it out. Okay. Frank says... You know... Frank knows in the past... I've said that I'm not a big fan of making house rules for games. In my last podcast, though, I said I did make one for Lorenzo El Magnifico that's made it much better. Uh, You've done the same to many games in order to make them better uh, for the group that you play with. Frank wonders if I would mind sharing some of my house rules that we do play with uh, for certain games. They're so much better. Let's see. Well, there's whatever one I talked about last month. Or Lorenzo El Magnifico. And let's see, what else, what else, what else? Back to rank.rado.com. Do I still have that open? No, I don't. 
ranked. Off the top of my head, I know one. Super easy. Uh, Carcassonne. It is ridiculous that in every iteration of Carcassonne ever, you wait until the beginning of your turn to draw your tile. When that is, that is ludicrous. You should draw your tile at the end of your turn so you've got everybody else's turn to think about what you want to do with that tile. It's just ridiculous that they keep doubling down on the draw tile at the beginning of your turn. So dumb. So dumb. So that's an example. Let's see what else. Oh, uh, Agricola is one. Although this one's quasi... Quasi-official. Um, there uh, Years ago, Uwe Rosenberg did not post, but one of the developers of Agricola posted in a forum somewhere on BoardGameGeek a rule that Uwe and other developers use, which had to do, I think, with Farmers of the Moor, that when they're playing two-player with Farmers of the Moor, they add one of those extra cards that's only supposed to be used at higher player counts just to de-tighten the game a little bit, and also to ensure that stone is available right from the beginning. Because if you don't ensure stone is available right from the beginning, that means some cards are just not as good. Um, because, you know, you really need to have stone. And so we always do that. I don't remember what the card is. I don't remember what the thread is. And like I said, it was never truly official, but because it was said that Uwe does this, okay, well, if it's good enough for Uwe, it's good enough for us. Let's see, what else? What else? There aren't going to be very many. I am just scrolling through the list. Thinking, what do we do? Um, you know, some, a lot of times the the official rule is everybody has to do things in order. And Jen, and I say, screw that. We will just do it simultaneously in a game where you have a lot of planning. Or you know, we say, oh yeah, okay, I could do one move, and then you could do one move, and we could ultimately spend our five action points that way. But we'll just say, let's just do it simultaneously. And you know, the reason the games do this is because occasionally one out of every five actions will have a situation where both players want to do something at the same time, and then turn order matters. And so we just say, hey, let's just do everything at the same time. And if we both decide we're doing it, then we'll hey rewind. Okay, who gets to do this first? Because nine times out of ten, it's not really an issue. So that's a very common thing we do uh, in in several games, just you know, where as appropriate. Let's see, I'm down into my thirties. I'm not really seeing much else. Not seeing much else. Yeah, because normally, rather than introduce a rule, we would just get rid of the game. Oh, time stories for the entirety of all nine modules of time stories, we used our own made up two-player rules because the two-player rules that came with time stories are terrible. And then the updated two-player rules that they implemented when it was announced, when everybody said how terrible they were, the updated version were almost as terrible. And so we've, we've used our own home rules for, well, gosh, that's been going on for four years now, so that's definitely one. But I'm, I'm, I'm almost through my top 100, and I'm not seeing anything else. Nope. No Siri Bob. I would normally I would just get rid of the game rather than um, implement a rule. It has to be a really special game, like Time Stories, because the problem with our rule for Time Stories is it completely invalidates the scoring system. Every time you end, you're supposed to oh look, you check your score, and that gives you resources you can use in the next run. Which in, inevitably, if you have those resources, will affect how well you do in the next run. And because I have no idea if my ver- I've tried to make it balanced based on what they've said, but I don't really know because I haven't done any play testing. So that means we've had to throw away a major portion of time stories. And this is why I don't do it because I don't want in the back of my mind to be constantly thinking, well, you know what, this might really break the game in ways that I can't predict. I'd rather just get rid of the game. Oh, uh, at the gates of Lo Yang, that's another one. Um, although it's a really simple one, we just got rid of all the attack cards. And you could argue that that upsets the balance of the game, and I think it might, because I remember years ago I posted on BoardGameGeek the kind of scores Jen and I got, and everybody said, it's impossible to get those scores. And I've always thought, 
Well, it's one of two things. Either we were playing wrong, which is certainly possible, or it's because we took out all the nasty steel aggression attack cards. And then suddenly, without us at each other's throats half of the time, we were able to achieve so much more. And maybe that fundamentally breaks the game in ways that we couldn't predict. But Jen loves that the gates of the Yang so much that we live with it anyway. So there's a few examples for you. Frank. Okay. Oh my gosh, so many questions. We're only halfway through. Olaf. Olaf. Greetings from the Netherlands, you say. Uh, you know what, Olaf? I'm going to get a drink of water first. Hold on. Alrighty. Do I ever consider value for money when looking at a game? Answer, almost never. Reviews of almost all consumer products and services take price into account, but for some reason this aspect seems largely ignored by many board game reviewers. Is it a fact that you can get your games mostly for free and that makes us of little interest? For your audience, of course, this is not the case. You are entirely 100% right, Olaf. I do not disagree that um, it would be a value add to my videos if I included a, is this worth it? Um, and I and I think you're right. Most reviewers don't do it. I, you know, certainly... Um, Shut Up and Sit Down does. I know they always talk about, is this worth the money it will cost you? I don't do it. I don't begrudge them that they do. I don't do that for several reasons. It's something you got to understand. Um, every time Shut Up and Sit Down talks about whether something is worth the money or not, as far as I'm concerned, you might as well throw that opinion out the window because they got that game and every other game they play for free. So their view of the value of games is literally from the perspective of a multimillionaire who does not think about cost. Who, you know, they could articulate, they could intellectualize. Well, if I did have to pay for this game, this is how I would feel about it. But I don't believe for a second that it will truly be reflective of what they would really think if they really had to pay $50 to $150 for every single game they played. And therefore... Every time they talk about it, I wince a little inside because I think they are doing games disservice, the disservice of giving a very biased and skewed perspective that is out of touch with reality. And the only way to avoid that is to truly buy the games yourself. And if you don't, you are an untrustworthy giver of opinions in that regard. And that is why I don't do it. That's one of the reasons I personally do not do it. I genuinely believe my perspective would be completely immaterial because 95% of all the games I play showed up for free at my doorstep. So how dare I, how very dare I um, presume to speak to the value of these games. But beside that, I would still be a bit hesitant to do it if I bought every single game myself. Because how can I speak for you, Olaf? Because I don't know how much money you make. I don't know how much uh, disposable cash you have on hand at the end of every month. I know nothing about you and your circumstances. And for me to give an opinion based on my perception of the value of money, which in is almost guaranteed 100% to be different than yours, is so insanely subjective as to be meaningless. So that's another reason I don't do it. Um, sorry, nobody's ever asked me about this before, but it's definitely something I've given consideration. It's a conscious choice I have made to almost never, ever, ever talk about the true value of these games. Another reason I don't do it is because I do think it's immaterial, because the value of my videos, I personally believe... And I really do believe I do this better than anybody else 
including like, you know, slicker drips or, you know, and other st- uh, stations that very closely ape what I do. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I, 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 I totally invite anybody to adopt my format because, hey, it means maybe they'll make videos I enjoy watching because uh, that's the, way, the reason I film the way I do. But I really do think... I'm, certainly my skill is not at avoiding goofs. Paulo can confirm that. But I really do feel that my skill is at capturing the essence and feel of that game. That if you watch one of my videos, you know what that game will feel like to play. And you should be able to make an informed decision about whether you will, you and yours will find it entertaining. And I believe my run-throughs are as close to an objective metric of what a game experience is as you can get. Because I don't just say, oh, let me just do a dry or, you know, demonstration of the game because I spend more time talking about what I'm thinking than what I'm actually doing. Because that's, you know, you know, the majority of your brain power when you're playing a Euro is not on literally controlling the muscles in your hand to move the pieces from one place to another. When in fact, that's what most videos focus on is, oh, look, I can move my piece from one place to another. It's what goes on in your brain and that's what I spend all my time doing. And because I do that... If you watch the video and hopefully completely ignore my subjective opinion at the end in the final thoughts, you should know with a high degree of certainty whether you should pay $30 or $50 or 80 pounds or 120 euros or whatever it is because you for yourself know what 120 euros means to you. And having just played the game virtually through my hairy arms, you should know what it is. So um, I, I, don't think, I, I don't think my videos need it. So that, you know, and I, and I could actually go on to this about quite a bit, but, you know, long story short, I, 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 I think it would be ill-advised for me to do it. And I think I, oh, another reason not to do it is because it instantly dates your videos because people watch my videos years and years and years and years later when suddenly a game might originally cost 30 pounds, cost 300 pounds because it's out of print or a game that originally cost 30 pounds now costs three pounds because it's in a bargain bin. And yet... Five years ago, I was talking about its value at 30 pounds, which means in five years, that is completely meaningless information for me to give out because I didn't have the foresight to say, well, it was worth $30. Is it worth $300? Why didn't I talk about that five years ago? It's, I think that the run-through itself will stand the test of time so you can decide whether it's worth $3 or $30 or $300. So that's my feeling on the subject, Olaf. All righty. Continuing along, uh, Olaf also wonders, do I ever look at free print and play games? Almost never. Almost never. Um, Because that's pointless. If it's a free print and play game, you can find out for yourself if it's worth. Because honestly... My main, the main value I like to think I offer, I mean, so many people complain every week. I get dozens of people just being super bitchy at me on board game or you know, on YouTube complaining about how terrible this is, how um, you know, they can't learn the game from my video. And I always reply, dude, I'm not here to teach you how to play the game. Go talk, go watch Rodney Smith's video. I'm here to let you know if you should buy the game. If you've already bought the game, it's too late. You're watching the wrong channel if you're watching me. Um, Because that's what I do. I try to provide some kind of litmus test so you can decide whether the game looks like fun. That's why for the longest time I resisted doing things like rundowns. And when I do a rundown, I still try to make it more about showing and less about telling. But anyway, um, right. So, do you understand that it's hard to find games that are... Case in point, 30 rails. Pains me to hear uh, me rail about, rave about Railroad Inc. While, in my opinion, judging by the actions, I'm not the only one. A better railroad, uh, roll and write, would be 30 rails, which is free. 
Have I ever considered trying and playing reviewing such a game? No, I have not. I... <sighs> Again, because it's, it's not... It, that is not my mission statement. My mission statement is not to create a platform. I mean, surely, I mean, in this podcast, I talk about new things I'm excited about. So I know I'm doing it. I know I'm boosting the signal ratio for some games and not for others. But personally, I'm not excited about printing out a game and cutting it out and making my own cardboard shits and using coins I've got in place of other things. Personally, that is part of a free... you know, a print-and-play game that I am not intrigued or engaged in. I do not want to do that. And that would have an impact on my overall enjoyment of the game. So it's not something I seek out. It's not something I end up talking about. Uh, you're right. It is a shame that there's not a greater avenue for games like that to come to the surface. But on the other hand, what difference does it make? The, the designer made that game purely... For the love of the game. And they put it out there in the universe. And you know there are so many avenues for people who do want to do all the arts and craft required. I think you know, that's a very small percentage of board gamers when it boils right down to it. And chances are, anybody who likes doing free print and play will already know about 30 Rails. And people who don't know about 30 Rails, even if I were to do a video about it, would say... Yeah, but I, I still don't want to actually have to use my very limited color toner in my inkjet and spend an hour trying to cut all the pieces out by hand. That does not sound like fun to me. So you know, I, I think those sorts of things self-balance. You know, they, the, you know, the audience for those self-regulates, and I'm just not involved. So that's kind of my feeling. Hopefully, uh, hopefully that doesn't sound totally insane. But moving along, Alicia says, You know I passed on Field of Arl. But hope I would play it again. Alicia's played it over a dozen times. It was actually way, uh, and it actually has way more blocking than we expected, given the number of action spaces. Because uh, Alicia's pointing out that my original complaint was that it was very wide open. Uh, you know, that it, it wasn't quite as what do you call uh, sandboxy as Uve's other games like Caverna and whatnot. But it, it for I, I'm pretty sure that's why I said it was years ago. Anyway, continuing for Alicia says, It's a great one. I can't wait to try the expansion. Any chance you'll ever try this again with the TN trade? On that note, there are many games you previously chalked up as not for you. Or are there many games that you chalked up as not for you that you think you might change your game about it given the chance to play it more? Um, you know what? Hmm. Well, I get to answer your second question. Hey, how about Feast for Odin? Uh, because the Norwegian's expansion just showed up. I'm hoping to play it and, and film it this month. Because supposedly it fixes all my complaints about you know the random luck factor of the uh, card draws, the weapon card draws, that really turned us off for Feast for Odin. So yeah, it happens. But not very often. It could potentially happen more often, but I'm just in a situation. I mean, I, I play between 20 and 30 new games every month. Under those circumstances, I do not have time to go back and try other games again, and that includes Field of Arl. It could very well be that I made a mistake, and if I played the game ten times... Oh, no, actually, I know for a fact if I played the game ten times, I would enjoy it more, because as I said earlier in this very podcast, the more I play a game, the more I enjoy it. I'm sure that would be the case for Field of Arl. But Field of Arl, at the time that we played it, did not do enough to make me say that I'd rather play it than Agricola. Because of my situation, where I never get to go back and play games that I love, why would I play Field of Arl if I had the chance to go back and play something? I'd play Agricola first. And if I and after that, 
I would have played Glass Road second, and I would have played Mercator third. Field of Arrow was great. I, I didn't say it was a bad game. It was obviously a very, very good game, but it didn't do anything that would make me want to play it more than other games. And so, yeah, um, maybe I didn't give it a fair shake. I mean, you got to bear in mind, when I do my final thoughts, it's after having, you know, only played the game at most a couple of times. You know, Jen and I play it once, maybe we play it a second time, and then when I do the run-through, that's like an extra half play. And sometimes that isn't the case. Sometimes we just play it once. Sometimes, and I articulate this when it happens, sometimes I've never played it at all, and I'm just literally learning it as I'm filming it because of the circumstances, because that's what happens when I play 20 to 30 new games every month, as you're seeing in these new roundups I'm doing. Because I, you know, I used to play tons of games, and they just didn't get covered. Now at least I'm trying to give them a little bit of time in the sun. Um, and yeah, it just you know this doesn't allow us to do it. Continuing on, any chance we'll play Star Wars Outer Whim? No, zero chance. It is all but guaranteed we would hate it. It sounds like it's geared towards Euro fans. It's a three-hour game. It's it's still an American. Yeah, maybe it's more Euroy, but everybody keeps saying how you know it, it does the best of the Firefly game, and I've seen those games. I, we hate pick up and deliver. We hate just moving around a galaxy to go from planet A to planet B so we can deliver our things, so we can get money, so we can go to. It's just oh man, everything about it seems awful. From a gameplay perspective. Theme sounds great. Now, I'm sure it's very, very good. But so not the kind of thing we're into. I know Jen is a big Tolkien fan. Any sort of game she would like to see with Tolkien theme. Ask again, Alicia. Send it in, and we'll cover it next time. All righty. Although I'm sure her answer will be, I don't know, whatever. I think she's even answered that in the past. Um, all right. Ben says, Eric Summer recently lamented being trounced by me. No, nope, nope. It wasn't Eric Summer. It was Eric, um, W. Eric Martin, the head news guy of uh, Board Game Geek. So Eric Martin uh, recently lamented being trounced by me in a game of Black Angel. Could I discuss my first impressions of the game uh, considering a Gen Con pickup? I did talk about it a little bit in my second roundup, my roundup of May. Um, so I don't know if you saw that. I, I, I didn't go into much detail. I only played it once, and it's definitely something I want to play again. It's, having played it once, it struck me as every bit as good as Twa. And while the core central thing, this dice drafting, which coincidentally I described earlier in this very podcast, it was a Dan, um, you know, it's uh, that same idea, hey, we roll some dice, we use them, we can buy them from each other, and it's, you know, we use them as kind of a worker, a quasi-worker placement thing. So much of the game is the same. The force of, you know, the source of threat... Well, here's the The fundamental difference between Twa and Black Angel. This is a sneak peek for whatever final thoughts I ultimately do after I get to play it some more. Is that Twa is much more regimented and structured. Twa has a very clear format that you go through round after round. First, we deal with threats. Then we deal with our dice. Then we do our cleanup, you know, and you know, and, and so on. Um, there is no structure for black. Oh man, I am really, I am getting tired, and I'm not anywhere close to done. But I will soldier on. In Black Angel, everything is very loose. Threats come up based on st- everything that happens is not because of a preset structure that you play through round after round after round. Everything that happens, every event that comes about is a consequence of the actions we chose. 
attacks happen because we try to go out and colonize planets, which is kind of the equivalent of using city cards. Because um, we have, we, we you know, we, in, 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 in Twilight, you just put your guys on the city card and hey, now in future turns, I can use them. And um, we actually have to put our guys out on little flying saucers and fly them out in, um, to get to the planets so that we can then leverage those planets in um, Twilight. But the thing is, when you get out to those planets, if those planets are close to raiding parties, that will create new threats that we have to deal with. Instead of Twa, where, oh no, it's just the beginning of every round, there's new threats. We just draw new threat cards and we deal with them and they build up over time. That, I think, is probably the simplest example of the fundamental core difference between these two games. And But it's it's ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Everything is very organic and fluid and flowing as opposed to structured and regimented. I don't know which is the better way to go. The structured and regimented approach means you, as a player, know what's coming. It gives you a lot more... It gives you a lot more to hang your hat on. A lot. Uh, it's easier to plan your long-term strategy. Um, I'm, I'm not going to say that Black Angel is a more tactical game because it's still a very deep and strategic game where you will be doing things that took you five or six rounds to ultimately build up to have a huge epic payoff, just like Twa. But the trip there is much more loosey-goosey, and it's awesome. Is it better? I don't know. And I, I need to play it more. Because I've played Twa a lot. I've played Twa for dozens of hours. I've played one game of Black Angel. So it wouldn't be fair to really address them. But uh, uh, you know, with it, just within the first couple of rounds, it was obvious to me that that's the thing that separates these two games. It's a great game. It, make no mistake. Um, and I'm not just saying that because I beat Eric uh, so uh, soundly at a game that he had played a half a dozen times and it was my first try. I would like to think it helped that I played a lot of Twa, and by his own admission, he had never played Twa. So that kind of gave me a bit of a leg up, maybe. But, long story short, Black Angel is great. It's still my most anticipated game of the year. I cannot wait. Um, if I were at Gen Con, I would knock over anybody to get there to make sure I got a copy before I left. Natalie says... In my last podcast, I didn't understand her question, so she's going to try again. Do I feel the need for to win is stronger in certain types of games? Maybe you feel stronger about winning in a race game or abstract game than you do about winning in a game of building uh, things uh, like Castles of Mad King Ludwig, where the result, the end result of a beautiful, beautiful castle, is in itself very satisfying. Okay. Hmm. Hmm. Mm. Nope, I like winning no matter what. Uh, I, I, and I very much like to win, and I very much feel bad when I don't win. I, I think for me, it's universal. It doesn't really matter. Uh, I would so like to be magnanimous and the bigger man and say, oh, it's not the destination, it's the journey, baby, because I do believe it. But it doesn't change the fact that, yeah, I, I really want to win. Um, it's weird, I'm not competitive, because it's not like I want to... I don't want to win at your expense. I just want to, to you know, in your example of, of Castles of Mackie and Luna, or you know, uh, Castles of Burgundy, or Castles of anything, really, where you're building castles. Uh, yeah, I could just say, oh, look at this wonderful thing I've built. But the, you know, the, the ultimate metric for how good a job did I do building in a competitive game is, did I score more victory points than you? And if I didn't, I don't feel like I did as good a job as I could. And so, no matter how proud I am of my accomplishment, it's tainted. And I wish I was a bigger man and I and I wasn't so petty about it, but I am. And it's particular I especially wish it cuz Jen wins like 70% of the time. 
And even when I do win, it's usually a squeaker. And often when she wins, it's a blowout because she is just better than me. I don't know if she's better than me, but she has more patience than me because I'm a more tactical player. I I tend to play by my gut and just go by the seat of my pants and see how it all works out, whereas she will chess-like work out four or five or six turns in advance, which is why I often just have to stare out the window while she APs through something that I decided infinite eons ago. But yeah, it, it is the way it is. If Jen were here, she could. If you want to hear Jen's answer, I can tell you her answer. She'll say, "Oh, I don't care if I win or lose." That is so easy to say when you win seventy percent of the time. And there have been many, many games where Jen is just spiraling. This happens to her, especially in Agricola. I have an unusually high win rate in Agricola compared to her because she has a tendency to be too ambitious. Because she gets all her cards, she says, I will play all of these cards. And like, honey, you know you won't. You should only play three to five of those cards, period. And no, I will play them all. And she ine- inevitably overextends herself. And you know, I play lean and I win. You know, just by leveraging, you know, just a small little engine while she tries. I've got to get all these things into play. And I often, it becomes very frustrating for her. And I can I, I can identify just how miserable a time she is and we often won't finish a game. It's weird. Here's another reason that I have such a poor win rate. Chances are, if Jen's not winning, she's having a really miserable time. And therefore, I'm having a miserable time. And I just don't want to put her through it, so we quit early. If I'm losing... It's often sometimes obvious that I'm having a miserable time. But, and, and it kind of affects her ability to enjoy the game too. But I'm always quick to point out, honey, just because I'm having a miserable time doesn't mean I don't enjoy playing this game. I'm just angry at myself. And it looks like I'm really terrible. And I'll try to stifle that. But um, I do still want to keep playing. I really do. Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm just a bit masochistic in that regard. <laughs> it's weird. Alrighty, continuing, she says, Natalie says, now that I do paid videos, do I still only accept games that I think we will like? Yes. Uh, I could uh, be doing a lot better, but I am still saying no to 9 out of every 10 games, uh, even from people who will happily pay. And I still say, thank you, keep your money, I'm not going to bring this into our house. Maybe you can stop saying that you got paid multiple times in your videos. (laughs) I don't think that anyone believes you are lying about what you think. Natalie... I, oh, Natalie, you beautiful, naive lady. Uh, there are, pl- I am not repeating that for you. I'm repeating that for the vast um, underbelly of the internet that takes it upon themselves every week to uh, make it their mission in life to tear down the evil, um, uh, you know, the, the, the evil scourge of the board game industry that is Rotto run through in his shilly ways, where, oh, now he accepts money? I knew it all along. And so I, I got to keep repeating it. Sorry. Uh, it's funny, actually, coincidentally, I did try with my latest roundup to not say it every single time, but I kind of messed up. I'm going to try and be a bit more circumspect, but no, it does bear repeating because there is a cottage industry of folks uh, out there. It, don't get me wrong. It is the minority of viewers. The majority of viewers, it's not that they think... It, it, the majority of viewers just don't think about it at all. Um, and a... A minority of viewers do think about it, but they they think, hey, people are good because, as it turns out, people are good and there's no reason to worry about it. And then it's a much smaller minority. You're like, no, people are bad and Rado is bad. And look, I have to prove it. And, which, and, and I'm really just placating the smallest minority, but they are the loudest minority. So I'm sorry I got to keep doing it, but I'll try to be a bit more cool about it. Um... Let's see, about the Dice Forge expansion, can you just add the new cards or do you have to play with it? You know what? I've already talked about this. You must have written this before I did my Dice Forge video. So watch my video. I talk about it. It's my one complaint about that expansion. 
Chris says, what is math trading? In a previous podcast, you mentioned I was the creator of the worldwide promo, a math trade. What was that? How does it work? Well, if you just do a search for worldwide um, math trade or worldwide promo math trade, you'll find it. It's a thing that they run quarterly. At least they ran quarterly back when I ran it. A math trade is a thing where you have a bunch of games you want to get rid of or promos or expansions or whatever. And there's a lot of games out there you want. So you just post onto a list. Here's all the games I'd like to get rid of. And then everybody else does the same. And now there's this big master database of a bunch of games everybody wants to get rid of. After everybody's added their games to this little master list, then you go through the list and you say, oh, this game I really like, I would give up A, B, C, or D. I would give up any of these to get that. And everybody does the same. And after everybody's done that, a program runs it through runs it through an algorithm to ensure that the majority of people give up the game they want to give up to get the game they want to get. And this often results in chains where, oh, well, to make this happen, that I wanted to give up Wingspan so that I could get Lorenzo Il Magnifico. I just looked at two games on my shelf. And I was willing to give up my wingspan. I really wanted that copy of Lorenzo. And so the algorithm decided, oh, to send your wingspan to Bob in Poughkeepsie. Bob in Poughkeepsie will send his copy of Castles of Burgundy to um, Betty in uh, Louisiana. Uh, because Betty won Louisiana. Betty in Louisiana will send her copy of Suburbia to um, Chet, uh, Chet out in California, because he wanted it. And then finally, Chet will send his copy of Lorenzo Il Magnifico to me. And everybody got what they wanted uh, in a way, because Chet wasn't going to give me Lorenzo Il Magnifico in exchange for Wingspan, and yet somehow I got rid of Wingspan and got Lorenzo Il Magnifico. It's awesome. It's a lot of fun. It's very confusing, which is why if you do a search for Rado Video Math Trade, I did like a five-part video that walks through how they work. So, and to this day, even though I did it a long time ago, people still use it as a, well, watch Rado's video. It'll teach you some of the basics, even though it's really out of date now because the software has changed and all that. But that that's it in a nutshell. Okay, and they're a lot of fun. Okay, Black Angel. Oh, more questions from Black Angel from Eric. As discussed on the Board Game Geek PM, I'm asking you here, can you go deeper, spill your guts about why Black Angel... You know what? I just did that earlier. Hopefully that helped, Eric. Okay. Eric wanted to know more about Black Angel. Okay. Uh, And I would assume... I didn't read the rest. Oh, yeah. About does it surpass Twa? I don't know yet. It could. But like I said, it's at once so similar and so different. It's, 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 It's a tough one. But it's great. I can say that. Nicolas from Chile says he's a big fan, a newbie to board, mostly a solo gamer. He has a group that gets together every couple of weeks. And he has a couple questions. I'm considering going for a, to a convention. What would I recommend? I'd want to go and check out some games not usually available here in Chile. Well, we have a lot of good game stores, but there are a lot of games that we don't get here, and buying them online is expensive because of shipping and customs. And to meet people. Since I just got 7th Continent from the 2nd edition Kickstarter, I'm wondering if you and Jen are able to finish the Voracious Goddess Curse or any others. We did go back and finish the first one, and we've never done any others. And it breaks my heart. I would love to spend more time with it for the reasons I've talked about many times, including this very video. It just doesn't... I, I, I can't do it. And, I, and now I've got my new um, the expansion. I've got all this cool stuff. And I still... Oh, man. So sad. What do I think of the game two years after my last review? I think the same thing I thought back then because I haven't gotten to play it since. But back to your first one. Uh, game, I am not the person to ask. 
I don't go to many conventions. I don't want to go to conventions. For me, going to convention is usually work-related. Um, but you want to go to a convention, if you, if you want to go to play a lot of games, uh, Board Game Geek, we'll see. You're, you're down in, in Chile. I'm going to say probably Board Game Geek Con. The one in November or the one in spring. Because they have an amazing library. They have all the latest new hot games that are available. Um, and it is a great, great... I mean, there's some sales, but that's not really the focus. The, and you can play anything there. And they make it really easy to find people. I'm going to say Board Game Geek Con. I'm pretty confident about that. I mean, Dice Tower Con, kind of similar. But it's interesting. Dice Tower Con is very aggressive about curating the library they've got. So they've only got great games. Whereas Board Game Geek Con, they got everything. I mean, I did. You can do search Verado board game geek video, a board game geek convention video. I did one years ago, and I do I, I do a little panorama of their of their library. It's insane. Anything you want to play, you will get played there, with with almost without exception. That's kind of what they you know, including old games nobody ever heard of, nobody remembers. But hey, you might be interested in it. So and it, it's a great social thing. And I, I mentioned because it's in Texas, so I expect. It might be easier for you to get to it, um, you know, flying into Dallas because Dallas is a, uh, you know, a uh, what do you call it, a transfer. Um, so you you might be able to get a, a decent direct flight there. I'm not quite sure, but that would be a consideration for me. So that's going to be my gut answer. But you're really better off going to Board Game Geek forums. You go to Board Game Geek, go to forums up at the top of the page, and then go to conventions and then ask. Uh, because you will get dozens of people suggesting all the conventions, including ones that maybe are a lot closer than ones in America. Uh, Board Game Geek is a much better resource for these sorts of things than I will ever be. But anyway, uh, thanks for listening, Nicholas. Alrighty. Oh my gosh, Marco, what you got? Uh, did I have a look at the second edition of Ancient World by Ryan Lockett? What are your thoughts? You know what? Yes, I did. I got a uh, co- I got to play a copy of it at Dice Tower Con, um, which means well, I should. Uh, so should have recommended Dice Tower Con to Nicholas a second ago because I got to play it there. Um, I bet you I could have played it at Board Game Geek Con too. But anyway, I did get to play it, and I was so excited because supposedly it took care of our one complaint because we thought Ancient World was great, but it was so aggressive. The uh, the denial based worker placement was so mean, and now they they made it qu- not quite so aggressive and cutthroat because hey, if I if I go to a space with my high level worker, other players can go, still go there. They're not locked out. It's just they now have to pay money. For my money, it's still too cutthroat for us. In fact, I played a strategy which meant I should have spent the entire game cutting people off because I had more workers, more high-level workers than everybody else because I really invested in that heavily. But then I just couldn't bring myself to just be cutthroat and ruin the people I was playing because I knew exactly what they wanted to do. And I could totally cut them off and just bleed them dry until they were so poor they couldn't do anything. And that's what I should have done to win. And I couldn't bring myself to do it. And I came in a distant third. And that's when I realized, ancient world, still not for us. A challenge from Marco. Retheme his number one game of all time, Coliseum, without making it just another theater or performance game. Ooh, that's a good challenge. Oh, it would help if I remember how Coliseum worked. Isn't that a game where you do auctions to get resources to put on shows, right? Right? Well... You don't have to put on... It doesn't matter whether it's a performance in the Coliseum or if it's a performance in you know, the Royal Globe Theater um, you know, to try and put on Shakespeare plays. You are creating things. Uh, that is a game where you are building something. Where you are auctioning to get goods so that you can make a thing and get points. That does not have to limit itself 
to the world of the theatrical arts. Uh, oh, and that's right. Oh, you also, you have menus, right? Because there's a lot of different menus. Hey, if you get this, this, and this, and this, you'll put on this show. If you do this, this, and this. All right, so literally, the first thing that pops into my mind is Retheme Coliseum to be a game about competing um, PC manufacturers. Or smartphone manufacturers, although that game already exists, Smartphone Inc. PC manufacturers where the auctions are all about bidding to get the components we need to make different kinds of PCs. Um, you know, because you know the different kind of video cards, the different types of uh, RAM, the different speeds of RAM, the different, um, is it solid state or, or regular drives? You know, what type of case designs and, um, you know, accessories, mice, wireless, wired, uh, with, without, uh, monitors, etc., etc. There are a million different flavors of PC you can get. And, you know, Dell and uh, I can't think of any other uh, PC manufacturers other than Dell off the top of my head. But, you know, there's dozens of them out there. And they're all competing to for your dollars, i.e. your victory points, to, to make the best one that will get the most sales, i.e. convert to victory points. Boom. Done. Next. There you go. Um, and unfortunately, I have to admit, I, I don't remember Coliseum enough to know what would not be right there. But from what I remember, you bid... You know, I mean, that's the thing. Bidding, uh, that, that's, companies do this all the time. They do bids to um, with, outsour- with outsourcing partners to, to buy en masse the resources they need to make their products. Because that's all they do is put stuff together, and that's all you're doing in Coliseum. I do believe it would work, and you could probably retheme it to work pretty well. So there you go. Nice try, Marco. Hit me again. Although maybe on a... Oh, man, I'm so tired. And I've still got one, two, three, four more people. Dave says, you have all of your games listed at ranked.rado.com and order which you like from best. And I've seen you quickly add games to that list um, by finding two games, one you like it more, and the next you like it less, and putting between them. Yes, that's how I do it. Have you ever come across a situation where games... <laughs> yes. Have I, yeah, I've ever gotten into a, where um, A, I like A more than B, I like B more than C, and I like C more than A... Uh, yes, I, I, that does happen from time to time. And when it does, I just have to reevaluate because I do believe, you know, and you're right. I mean, it could happen because, well, I value this one thing about this game that makes me want to bump it high. But and if that happens, it means I have not taken a far enough step back and evaluated the game as a whole. Not just that one element that I really, really love because I love dice drafting or whatever it is. I have to take, oh yeah, it's dice drafting, so maybe I like it better. But no, no, no. A game is more than just one or two mechanisms that I really like. It's everything. It's the uh, packaging. It's the rules clarity. It's you know the player aid. It's the manual. And um, you know, all that stuff has to be glommed together. And if I bring it all together, it should generally come to realize that, nope, 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 A is better than C, and um, B is better than C. And if I got into that loop, I was focusing on one thing instead of the, the whole picture. So that's how I resolve those when they happen. Because you're right, they totally do happen. Totally. A lot. Bartek says... I've recently noticed the includes paid promotion sign on some of your videos, and you also mentioned getting paid for those. As far as I remember, it was a long time you didn't take compensation. Well deserved for your hard and great work from publishers. What has changed? You know what, Bartek? Let's see if Google will not fail me now. Do a search for Rado. What would you search for? Rado Year 8. Yes, that will take you to a thread on BoardGameGeek called RRT, Rotto Runs Through Year 8. I go into great detail describing what happened at the beginning of my eighth year of filming and why I had to make this change. Um, I didn't want to do it. Had to do it because healthcare is crazy expensive in America. Uh, and other stuff. Go read the thread. I go into great detail. 
Continuing on. Um, questions about collecting board games. I own around 100 games. Obviously, far less is actively and regularly played. I don't know why. Um, just to force you, like I said earlier, force your, don't let yourself actually play any game more than times. You just can't play it again until you make it all the way through. But anyway, go on. Uh, I keep the others around maybe to come back to one day out of sentiment or because of the good times I had playing. I own 400 games, almost. But I often say I don't have time to play anything. Why do I keep them? Do I wish to keep playing them again? Do I consider myself a collector? Those are good questions. And... Yeah, I mean, it is nice having a collection. Back in the day, I had a collection of probably seven or 800 laser discs because I uh, basically got them all for like <clears throat> 75 cents a piece when a video retail store said, okay, we're selling everything. I was like, okay, I'll buy them all for like 75 cents a pop. And I loved having it. I wasn't going to watch it. I mean, have, have those movies I was never going to watch. But it's just really cool to have. It's it's nice. I mean, I, board games look cool. Um, you know, I mean, you, when, you, when you see... Those people who have gigantic libraries of books, you know, the, you know, the rich people who have thousands, you know, they haven't read all those books, but it still feels good to have them all. So, I mean, that's a, you know, the collection aspect. But yeah, I would like to play them all. I want to play them all. Someday, Rottle Run Through will end, and then I will do what I said earlier. I will not play any game more than two times until I've played every single thing in my collection, and it'll be awesome. And I will be able to play games and never feel, never have to buy another one, never feel bored for the rest of my life. That's what a collection of 400 games will do for you. All righty. Oh, man, my throat. Darwinots, uh, says Natalie. Do you, did you think Darwinots had beautiful art? Really? The weird blue border on all the tiles struck me as odd and, to me, made it difficult to see what landscapes were forming. Uh, did you like this? How about Jen? Oh, we both thought it was good. But, um, yeah, I, mean, I, I can't speak for Jen. She's not here. But here's the deal. When I said it was beautiful, I was not talking about the tiles at all. The tiles... If you see them in real life, I don't think they'd be as much of a problem as what you were seeing on your screen. I, 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 yeah, I, I don't think it was hard to read uh, you know, the, the zones as they grew up. That's probably a trick of digital versus seeing it IRL you know, and you know, just being able to soak it in. But the reason I said it was beautiful was not the tiles. It's the cards. It's all these cool, wonderful, far-out, funky animals. And that, that's... You know, yeah, we enjoyed that. That's where the uh, aesthetic really came through. Um, the color palette of the game is really nice as well, which is obviously a strength of Vincent Dutre. I mean, it's what I often um, rave about is his use of color. But no, the tile design themselves is pretty journeyman. And you're right, I would have rather that rather than having that just like stark, you know, 45 degree angle line that clearly split the tiles in two, I would have liked to have seen them more organic. So it felt less artificial, but I, I, maybe they tried that and it became too hard to read. I don't know. Uh, but yeah, when I, when I said it was beautiful, I was talking about all the cool alien animals. Okay. Which is a shame they don't come on bigger cards. Uh, they are on little tiny, you know, uh, you know, tiny size. Uh, but I don't know if that'll be true for the final game or not. Last question. Oh, folks, light at the end of the tunnel. Felix says, Felix, don't kill me. Take it easy on me, buddy. He's been following my work for two years. Um, shout outs to Jen. You know, okay. Question time. I'm incredibly late to the party when it comes to Aeon's End. I only just started Aeon's End Legacy and of course fell in love with it. Of course. Okay. Sorry. I did a Young Turks channeling there. Can I recommend any particular order in which I should explore the regular Aeon's End expansions? Start with the base game, jump straight to the latest, avoid any particular expansion. Uh, since you've already suggested to start with Legacy, which I did, I am sure. Right. And that's a good question. 
Um, uh, War Eternal. I think it's reasonable to suggest save that one for the last because, um, you know, I remember one time somebody asked, oh, what's his name? The designer behind all of them. I can't think of his name. But they asked him, hey, if you could in a sentence or in a word say what is each one of them, when he said War Eternal, he said hard. And that's true. War Eternal is the um, the bosses. Oh, they are rough, yo. It is a um, you know. War Eternal is for experts. So save that one for the end. And honestly, strictly speaking, if you care about narrative, you should probably do Legacy, which introduces you to the world, introduces you to the characters, and then. Play, you know, get the base game. Because then, I mean, those characters who were, you know, they were kind of like in the story and they popped up. Now you get to play as them. And that's kind of cool. And then jump to, was it called New Age? Is that the new one? Because that's really the next chapter in the story. And it introduces the the um, make your own campaign play, which is really nice. That is, And then I would probably go in that order and then in, keep War Eternal for the end. Because it, it, it is tough. That's how I would go. Oh my gosh, folks, we're done. We're done. Three hours and 20 minutes. Not that you're at that point yet, but that's including Jen's talk. Oh, this was a long one. Uh, But now, folks, you've been waiting patiently long enough. Hang on. Jen will be here in just a mo. Hey, everybody, and finally, it is time for the questions and answers, where we will be joined by Jen. Hi, honey pie. Hello. Hello. And Jen may be joining us now, or she might have already been in the game's Q&A. We're not quite sure, because we're running out of time. She is about to (laughs) catch a flight, and she'll be gone for an entire month. Oh, it's going to be so sad. Um, I might have already told you that earlier in the podcast because I haven't recorded that yet, and I don't always remember what I've said, when I've said it, when I do things out of order. So It's a very time parallaxy episode. Yes, <laughs> but with all that out of the way, let's start with the personal cues and A's, starting with Thomas, who, let's see here, says, on the last podcast, things got a little heated about people not liking the last season of Game of Thrones. Okay. And uh, Thomas himself was lukewarm on it and felt he has to defend the naysayers by disagreeing respectfully. Well, that's fantastic. I'm all up for respectful disagreement. Uh, Definitely a subjective thing. I'm glad you enjoyed it, but I couldn't help feeling a few things were lacking. I won't go into it as it'll take too long for Q&A, but I think constructive criticism is a healthy thing to engage in and improve the media we consume. I completely understand that some do it a lot better than others. Thoughts? Well, sure, yeah, yeah, constructive criticism, totes. Although I do think 99.9% of the criticism leveled at the final season of Game of Thrones is, why couldn't it have been three final seasons? Because of what I talked about last month, that Game of Thrones has always been a very slow-paced, one might almost say ponderous series that really delves super-duper deep into every main and side plot that comes along. And as we moved into the third act, which represents the entirety of this season and a sizable portion of last season as well, things sped up considerably because storylines were coming to an end and they couldn't just keep spiraling on and on and on. Should the final season have been twice as long? Uh, you know, although It was pretty much the same length as a regular season. 
I don't know. I Again, I liked the velocity. I liked the fact that we were increasing in speed as we built towards the big finale. I thought that was strong. And I imagine the showrunners felt that way too. Because if they wanted to, HBO would have happily given them another three seasons. But it's interesting. Right from the get-go, they had said, before the series even started, that they were... I don't remember the exact numbers. But something like, we're going to do this whole story in 78 episodes. That was before the first episode ever aired. Before they even started filming, I think. They read the, said that in some interview. And it ended up they did 79 episodes. Or something like that. Which I think, I don't know if they just wanted to stick to their original declaration, which is why all those last episodes were feature-length films. But they felt it was the right thing to do to speed up the locomotion as it got closer and closer to the station. For viewers like me, I thought that was great. And I think for a lot of other people, they would have liked to spend... An, an entire season on Danny's descent rather than, you know, a, a, a few episodes. But again, I think the groundwork was laid for pretty much everything that was there. But yes, constructive criticism is good. And I don't know if the uh, D&D will take on the notion that, yeah, maybe we should have made it longer. Maybe we should have drawn out and given ourselves a whole another final season to wrap things up. But yeah, constructive criticism is great. But I don't know that there was that much constructive criticism. There was just a lot of, for the most part, screaming on Twitter and shouting on YouTube about how the entire series was retroactively rendered useless and pointless because they ruined the ending. They couldn't stick the landing. At least that's my perspective. That's not fair either. Sure, my response to you, (laughs) I was a bit more long-winded to you, is yes, constructive criticism is good. I just don't know how much of that I saw. I saw a lot of nitpicking. Oh, man, so much nitpicking. Uh, In my personal opinion, your mileage may vary. But hey, Honey Pie, we're now going to move on to Mom Gamer. and Because I don't think you have anything to say about the final season of Game of Thrones. Do you have anything to say about the topic of internet-based constructive criticism that showrunners and creative types in Hollywood can take on board for future projects? You have nothing to say about that either. You concern yourself with other things. You like a thing, you don't like a thing, and then you move on with your life. That's pretty much it, yeah. Okay. Uh, You don't have to really dwell on the thing that you liked or didn't like. Okie doke. Well, although maybe that is the most healthy comment of all. If you don't like a thing, oh, no big deal. Move on. Just move on. Alrighty. So, Mom Gamer says, it's a question. Uh, She asks if it's okay... She wants to know, Honey Pie, what is the secret behind our wonderful marriage? How do we deal with disagreements? Does playing board games bring you closer? How do you get over extreme upsets with one another? Mom Gamer does apologize if the questions are intrusive, and please ignore them if so. Mom Gamer would also like to say, have a wonderful day and or evening. Cool. All right, I'll let you take that one. Um, Well, I think we've talked about it a little bit before in that... Oh boy. I'm looking at the sound thingy and my voice is much quieter than my husband. Yep, yep, yes it is. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, give me the first question. The first question is, what's the secret to our wonderful marriage? I think you are the secret to our wonderful marriage. Because you're awesome. So everybody should just marry me. Yep. Although you're <laughs> taken at the moment. So At the moment? At the moment. Well, and for the next 50 years or so. Okay. Give or take. Mm-hmm. Maybe 70. All right. Um, next life? I don't know. <laughs> Hopefully we'll find each other. <clears throat> Basically, he's just a really understanding and considerate person. And I'm a type A personality. So it's really nice to have a calming influence uh, in my life and in our marriage. 95% of the stuff that is goes on in our life, 
matters more to me than it does to him, and he defers to my judgment. So I think that makes a lot of our lives relatively smooth, because I just make the decisions. And I consult if necessary, but really, you know, there probably just isn't a lot, especially because we've been married almost 30 years now, that we have to discuss and think about. I mean, obviously, <clears throat> moving country, yeah, that, that took some discussing. I was partially involved. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's mainly that. I think we've worked out our roles, and we're both comfortable, and we know each other well enough that we probably don't even need to talk about stuff because we know each other so well, but we, we still do. Does that answer that question? Sure. Okay. How do you deal with disagreements? Um, well, 95% of the time I win. Hooray! 5% of the time he wins, I would say. But it's, I also have a ranking system. We'll talk about it and I'll say, well, okay, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is this to you? And usually to him it's a 2 or a 3. Or, <laughs> you know, I could argue vociferously like it was a 9 or a 10, but it, it just isn't. Yeah, he could argue either side of any issue and <laughs> be very convincing. I did a lot of debate and uh, mock trial stuff in high school. Yep. Um but also, we love each other, and we both want the best for each other. So <clears throat> when you look at it that way, of course, we want to come to a compromise that we're both happy with. So I think we, we come at it like that, and um, yeah, just just make, make it work. Does playing board games bring us closer? Yes, definitely. Because uh, sometimes in everyday life, you just don't make time to be together, quite frankly. And board games make us be together. So definitely improves everything about our lives. How do you get over extreme upsets with one another? Well, that would only be me being extremely upset because I am the more volatile one. I think, well, I'm trying to remember the last time you were upset with me. And I think it was something to do with um, me not being very good about communicating with your mom and you being tired of being the middleman. Ah. Do you remember that? Uh, dimly, yes. Yeah. And it, it was more frustrating because he's dealing with her you know, 80% of the time anyway with all her medical stuff. And so probably for me, not being able to communicate as well with her as I would like to, um, and, and sort of asking him to be the in-between, you know, just adds to that burden. And so I've tried to take that away again. But actually what has, has happened with that particular issue is we've come up with a new solution. And the new solution is uh, that I don't cook dinner for her anymore. Uh, unless she wants me to, unless she wants to have whatever we're having. Because it was just creating so much stress to try and make my schedule fit with her eating schedule. And then she's had some dental work, you know, so she can only eat certain things. And I didn't want to eat those things. And she, ah, it was just creating so much stress. So the very easy solution was just having her make her own dinner when she was hungry with whatever she wanted to eat. And then I make our dinner the way I want to make it when I get around to it. So... That solved that problem, and I think it solved the other issue that, you know, I was trying to have him communicate for me. And it just doesn't need to be communicated anymore because it's it's sorted. <clears throat> so I would say that's a, an example of how we fixed that problem. All right. Do you have anything to add? Uh, no. I would say that all sounded spot on to me. Um, it's interesting. I was reading some article about the Democratic debates and Kamala Harris or whatever. And down at the bottom of the page on HuffPo or wherever it was, there was, you know, there's always those links to just random stuff. Mm -hmm. Just trying to, and one of them was, math proves whether your relationship will work. And I'm like, mm. okay, I got to look at that one. Because maybe there'll be a math test and that'd be fun to take. And uh, there wasn't. 
there was just a scientific paper, which I did not read, but I went and looked at the article anyway, very clickbaity. And uh, it did mention that <clears throat> the researchers had found one of the most consistently reported things to successful long-term relationships were two things. These two things above all else stood out to them on this, whatever it was, 30-year relationship long-term marriage study. One, look at each other when you talk which was really weird, but I guess, yeah, if you find yourself talking a lot and not looking at each other anymore, that's a symptom. Yeah, you're not tuning into your... Exactly. Yeah. And then the other one was acknowledging your role in the dispute. I mean, I think that was almost verbatim, the quote. Mm. And, and the article didn't go any deeper than that. It just mostly talked about the history of this sociologist and this mathematician and how they'd work together. And, and they're like, give me the meat! And they said, well, here's the link. I don't want to read the thing. Give me the test I can take on BuzzFeed. They didn't do that. So, But they did say those were the two things. And so you have any thoughts about that, Honey Pie? Well, Acknowledging just... your role in the dispute. Of course. I long ago decided I could not be friends with anybody who would always let me take all the blame. Mm. Um, that would be acknowledging your role in the dispute. Um, and that was that was a big thing. Because I used to just, oh, I'm sorry. I know this is blah, 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 blah. And it's my fault and so on. And a lot of people will just let you take all the blame. <laughs> and, uh, and you'll happily take it well, until you explode. Yes. Or, or I will recognize that, oh, this is that kind of person. And I might like them, but they're not going to be my best friend. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, yeah, you are very good about also acknowledging your part in whatever is going on in our lives. So I agree with that. And, I mean, when I was answering these questions a few minutes ago, the first parts of this, this Her, question. It was Mom Gamer. Mom Gamer's questions. Yes. Um, I was looking at you a lot of time that I was oh, well, answering there you go. the question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh -huh. So I, I think tick, tick. Tick, tick. Tickety-boo. Done. Okie doke. Moving on to Alicia. All right. Are you okay? I'm hot, but it's okay. I'm all right. I'll cool down in a minute. Okay. Jen hates menopause. <laughs> yes, I do. Can't all wait right. for it to be over. Yep. Okay. Totally unfair. The biological universe. Do you want a fan or something? Thinking about going to get that little fan. Okay. Okay. Why don't you talk I'll tell you what, folks. We'll be back right after this. Okie doke, everybody. Welcome back. Jen now has one of those little portable pocket fan things, which she just blew directly on the microphone. I have no idea what that sounds like. You might hear a little bit of it in the background, but... Just pretend you're on a plane with me. There you go. She feels much better oh, as nice. a result. All righty. And anyway, though, so we're moving on to Alicia, who has non-Game of Throne questions. Oh, my gosh. Imagine oh, you know, non-Game-related Game of Throne questions. Sorry, okay. Honey Pie. It's more well, GOT. I wouldn't got my fan. Oh! All right. That was your fault. Oh! I, I acknowledge my <laughs> fault in that particular issue. Okay. I failed. All righty. I should have just read ahead. Um, okay, no. I, yeah. So, Alicia agrees. They wrapped up beautifully. Looking at the series overall, which characters were my favorites over the course of the show, and what were my top five favorite episodes? Oh, Alicia, my brain don't work that way. Uh, if you asked me about a specific episode, I could give you my thoughts on it. But let's see. Well, my favorite characters. Um, well, I mean, it's. I, I want to say something really cool and edgy and offbeat, but I don't know which characters don't I like. They're all awesome. It was such an amazing character-led show. Who do I not like? Uh, I mean, because, yeah, they're all great. I, I loved every Lannister. I, I loved every Stark. I loved all of them. Gosh. 
I mean, and of course, of course, you have to say Tyrion is your favorite character. Everybody has to say that because he because Peter Dinklage rocks the hizzy. But oh, if I had to pick one favorite favorite character, ah, oh, it has to be Arya because of course it was so awesome every step of her journey. I mean, she was aspirational right from the get go, and just so uh, such an easy to empathize with character. I, I can't, I can't. They're all too good. And normally I like ranking things, but you know it's just a testament to the amazing qualities of Game of Thrones that I loved all of it. I mean, I guess if I had a least favorite character, I suppose Bran, just because they didn't really do much with him. They often skipped major part, and it's not a fault of, of him, it's just a fault of, I guess it's really a fault of, of uh, Martin, I suppose. I'm not sure. I guess everybody is tied for first place and then Bran is second place, because he was cool too. I liked him also. Alrighty. And what were my five favorite episodes? <sighs> well, I mean, it's gonna be all the obvious ones: hold the door, and 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 uh, you know the red wedding, and 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 you know, jeez, yeah. I'm sorry, I am not enough of an aficionado. I mean, if you were to ask me what my five favorite Star Trek episodes were, I could think about it and come up with something. Because uh, as much as I love Game of Thrones, I mean, maybe it's my favorite show of all time now. I mean, the, just thinking, just going through this mental exercise right now, it's just about flawless. But yeah, I, I can't. I can't pull. It's just going to be the you know the the obvious stuff. Uh, it is nice to go back and watch first season episodes though to see Malta or uh, and Dina in the background and say, oh, we live two blocks away from there. If only we'd moved there earlier, we could have been an extra because we actually knew people who were extras uh, in the scene of of well, you know what happens to Ned anyway. So and. More Game of Thrones. Do you think groupthink or clickbait, negative reviews and rants online have fed people being up in arms about the ending? Or perhaps people just struggle to see things from other angles, uh, which is, say, positive angles. I find people are so used to categorizing characters as good and bad, and they struggle to see gray. They also go on and on about character arcs, when in life, people progress and regress. Not everyone can have a perfect character arc they've grown accustomed to in the stories. On that note, which character developments were your favorites to follow? All right, well, first of all, I completely agree with you. There seems to be such a ridiculous obsession with the, you know, the, you know, the, the, was it Joseph Campbell defined character arc, the heroic journey? Oh, I, we have to go through these steps in a story that doesn't follow those, instantly fails, is objectively poor because they don't follow that rote prescription because. That's what Star Wars did, and Star Wars... It's just absolutely ridiculous. You do not have to follow the three-act structure to be a great piece of cinema. You do not have to follow the heroic journey or traditionally defined character arcs to be a great piece of art. I completely agree with you. Life doesn't work that way. And just because we are used to seeing that way and having our stories tied up in tidy little bows doesn't mean it has to work that way at all. And people's modern obsession, I don't know, it's because they feel like, oh, well, uh, this is academically sound. I can prove this is a bad piece of art because this is the way art is supposed to be. And if you feel that way, you don't understand how art works. Uh -huh. And look at me, I'm getting a little heated, so i got to calm down. <laughs> calm down. Uh, you clickbaited me, Alicia, <laughs> with your... Um, <clears throat> But yeah, I suppose to your other question, there is a bit of an echo chambery type thing going on these days with Last Jedi and Game of Thrones. And I mean, heck, if Twitter existed when Sopranos ended, 
what would have happened then? I have no idea. But fortunately for them, it didn't. And so it was, you know, people pretty much had to take it on, you know, its own merits. They could, and at most, they would talk about it at work the next day with coworkers because it was a different media consumption universe back then. And as a result, you know, I think a thing that most people immediately had a you know very visceral and probably for the most part negative response to was allowed to live and breathe and be its own thing and not get super duper dissected. And now I think uh, largely it's looked back, uh, you know, w- w- with a positive light. You know, the the series finale there. So yeah, I guess those are some thoughts. But that said, which characters were favorites to follow? Again, well, of course it's going to have to be Arya above all and Danny. And um, and everyone, and actually, strictly speaking, all the female characters on Game of Thrones probably had more love and attention to uh, you know their journeys up and down. And uh, whereas the men, I mean, I'm not saying that you know the the male characters, but the male characters were more uh, steady. And if anything, I think they were less fleshed out, which is crazy. I've never even thought about that until you've put this in my head. But I think that might be true. Which, if anything, is another testament to how culturally significant the Game of Thrones is. And I feel bad for anybody who didn't get to enjoy it to the same level that I did. I mean, that's what it comes down to more than anything else. You know, uh, you know, nitpicking stuff away, not adhering to you know previously established standards of what good art is. Oh, you're just denying yourself so much. Life is better when you enjoy things. You know... Focus on the positive. Focus on what it gave you. Even if it didn't give you exactly what you wanted, try to focus on what it did give you and you know, find the good in it, and you will be a happier person. I trust you. I know because I feel like... Sorry, I can't say I know, but I, I feel like I'm a bit happier than most people when I hear them ranting and raving about how you know Last Jedi destroyed their childhood or whatever. Okay. Not a question, just a remark. Let's see. Oh, and then you talk about the prophecies. Yeah, fair enough. I have to admit, I never really dove that deep into it. Alrighty, Honey Pie. Alicia hasn't left you out. And now she's going to put you through the ringer. Alright. Tolkien. Favorite characters. Gosh. Oh, dear. Do it. Do it. Well, Frodo, of course. Alright. Naturally. Um, yeah, I think he was my favorite character. Alright. I think that was... Um... Second favorite character. Hmm... I liked Aragorn. All right. Of course. Of course. All right. Well, then you have achieved Alicia's favorite characters by giving two. Okay. Well done. Thoughts about the upcoming Tolkien biopic? Or, well, it's already come out. Biopic? Oh, you know, a a biopic, a biographical motion picture. About Tolkien? Yes. Oh, didn't know about it. Those would be your thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we haven't seen it yet. I don't think it's available. To stream yet? Is it? I don't. I'm pretty sure it's not. I'm sure. I mean, when 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 it, when it's available to watch at home, do so we have to watch biography? it immediately? Is it a bioptic? Because it's a video, and a biography would be a book of his. Is that what you're? Is that what you're? It's, it's just but people refer to biographical feature films as biopics. Okay, I've never heard that term before, mm. but cool. All right, learn something new today. Yes. Are you excited now? Yeah, I am. Knowing I, that it exists, I know, I know something about his his life, and of course, being in the trenches and yeah, and all that apparently part. deals with all of that. And it's how, and it's, you know, a treatise on how all of that basically yeah. is founded. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Okay. Now, now that you know, know it. All right. <laughs> um, honey, yeah. if you could live in one place from the books, which would you choose mm. and why? Oh, I think that'd be Rivendell. Because it's so beautiful. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, probably Rivendell. All right. Bit of culture, um, center of civilization, lots of magic and interesting things going on. Fairly well situated. Mm -hmm. Waterfalls, mm -hmm. forests, mm -hmm. yeah, mountains, all mm -hmm. good. Orcs can't get to you. Orcs can't get to me. <laughs> but I don't think it was that, really. Because... No, I think isn't there something about how they're actually protected? Um, well, you know, the, I think in the magic. books there's like yeah. a bunch of stuff about how oh they're all masked on, the, but they can't make it in. You know, the, literally the forces of darkness cannot invade Rivendell because of some protective some such. I think that's the case. Well, I think it's just you're more of an magic. expert than me. Yeah, yeah. But so, yeah, yeah. That would be my choice. Well, at least you didn't ask me, but I'll say the Undying Lands because I don't want to die. There we go. Plus, I imagine it's the most technologically advanced, and I would like indoor plumbing. <laughs> And I don't know if Tolkien ever addressed that, but I think there's probably a better shot at dealing with fecal issues in the Undying Lands than in Rivendell. Okay, but we just went to the... Do elves poop, is the question. Everybody poops. Even elves. Yep. They're creatures of pure magic and perfection. I guess they eat, though, right? Well, they at least drink. Mm, all right. Well, they got the, they got the, the Lambus bread. Yeah, yeah. Or do they just make that for their guests? No, no. That's what the, <laughs> That sustains them on their long journeys. Mm, yes. Well, then I get in. What goes in must come out. Nobody wants to think about that, though. All righty. Any more, anything more to say that. about Elvish Poop? Uh, no, but I will say that we just went to the Recycled Arts Fair yesterday. Yes. And that was really cool. Um, but the thing that brings back to my mind is that they had um, composting toilets there, <laughs> in addition to the normal toilets. Yes, you were very excited about I that. I just think that's so awesome. Mm -hmm. What a great way to introduce people to that. So when I was growing up, a friend of mine, um, her parents were kind of hippies and they didn't have plumbing and so when i would go and spend the night at their house they had an outdoor an out an outhouse and so this kind of brought me back to that but basically the, the thing yesterday it was a bucket underneath a you know a seated area and they had a, a bucket of sawdust nearby and instructions on how to do it and just yeah put a bucket <coughs> put, put a scoop of sawdust over your stuff after you're done it absorbs the moisture it covers up the stuff and they were just going to go compost it and it was going to become good stuff um, afterwards. So I was just really impressed with that. Right. So I'm sure the elves have got that all sorted. Is you saying the elves are big on composting toilets? Yeah. All right. So still Rivendell. My Undying Lands argument did not sway you. Nope. Wouldn't you rather be in the Undying Lands? It's, no, the, it's the best place. If you're an elf, you can just live forever in Rivendell. She didn't say what. I mean, you're you. You're, oh, you're, me? you're you're a human. I was thinking I got to be a no. Character she just said, "Where do you, Jennifer, oh. Ham, want to live?" Well, gosh, I guess then I might have to change my mind. Oh, but you would you and you and you being in the Dying Lands, you would still be a human, so you probably couldn't. Yeah, but it's a pretty magical place. I guess if there's any place I could live well, forever, it's probably there. They took Bilbo and Frodo over there mm -hmm. in theory to live forever. Mm -hmm. There you go. But they all they were also ring bearers. Yeah. And actually, Sam got to go as well. Mm -hmm. So I think it's only ring bearers who have been magically... Oh, did Sam get to go? I thought he stayed. He well, stayed he, in the movies. He did, but Oh, and then later on, which movies will, don't cover. Yeah, 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 yeah. They'll come back for him. So all I have to do is expose myself to the darkest heart of corruption. Yep. And then I get to go. Yeah. Hooray! Is that the internet these days? Yeah, the yeah you go. Yes, I think uh, I'm ready to go then. Take me home, elves. Okay. Christian mm -hmm. wonders... Mm. Uh, Christian mailed a few months back asking for advice on puppy training. And unfortunately, we didn't give a lot in our response. We did mention Caesar, the Caesar method, which he looked up. In Australia, they can't watch very many of their videos. 
Uh, been doing the whole ignore the puppy when we come and go thing, but he still barks a lot when Christian and his wife have to leave him in a room alone. So he's got the old separation anxiety. Mm. That's the term. Yep. Uh, was it uh, Tula who had it really, really bad when, it, yeah. we, when we got her, when we were still living in England. When we take him for walks, he also pulls all over the place. He's now four months old. Am I expecting too much from him? Any tips on how to chill him out? Yeah. Cut you off his balls. Definitely do that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Neuter- neutering is will help a lot. Yep. And you, you've got a, a young animal, so you just need to let him mature. Give him positive reinforcement for everything he does right. Ignore what he does wrong. Um, distract as much as possible. What was that picture? I There oh. are four insanely cute pictures. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> okay, well, I wish you guys could see. Maybe you should put this as the uh, picture for your... Um, this run through, so everybody can see this picture of this adorable dog. <laughs> that is that is stupidly cute. Yep, that is. I'm ridiculous. trying to figure out what it is. It's uh, I assume it's a lab, right? It doesn't quite look. I mean, well, it's, it's, it's a puppy. It's a puppy, so it doesn't look. Or maybe it's a mix. I don't yeah, know. I don't know. That's crazy cute. Oh, very very sweet. Sorry, folks. Uh, you have no idea just how insanely cute Christian's four month old is. Yeah. So that would be my advice, and you know, you're you've got two years. Before they're adults. So mm-hmm. just, you're in for the long haul. Yeah. And what you do now will pay off in spades later. What did we do with Tula? Who, when we got Tula, she was, She what? was already five. Yeah. And yeah, and she just had insane, absolutely, yeah. really horrific. We'd, we'd just go howl for hours if we both left her. Yeah. So the, I know there was a process we went through. Yeah. Well, we actually got help from a dog trainer because it was... It was so really extreme. Bad. So basically what happened is... Um, I would leave the house for literally three seconds and come back in and leave the house. And was that before she got a chance to howl kind of a thing? Yep. Just so that she... And what about me? I think you were in the house. I think she was concerned when I left. Oh, okay. So I would just like literally leave the house for three seconds, come back in, fiddle fart around with something in the kitchen, leave for, leave again, come back in three seconds. So she got used to me coming and going and coming and going and not paying a not even a scintilla of attention to her. I didn't look at her. I didn't say anything to her. I just came in. I, you know, moved a glass around on the countertop and went back out. Came back in, you know, put the glass in a different spot, shuffled some papers, went back out. And I did this for days until she got used to me coming and going. And as as she does, you can slowly make it five seconds and then 10 seconds and then three minutes. And, you know, obviously not that big a jump. But basically, that's the idea is just to condition them that you will be back because that is their main concern is the pack leader has left. They have forgotten me. Mm -hmm. I better, you know, bark and let them know that I'm still here because I cannot follow. And clearly they would have taken me if they could have. (laughs) <laughs> he just doesn't realize, or she just doesn't realize, that I'm still back at the house. I've got to let him know. Mm-hmm. So that's it. It's just let him know that you will be back. Yeah. I do recall during that process, there was a lot of just walk down to the corner, uh-huh. stay there for three minutes, and then walk back home. And I remember I did that with you. Yeah. So at some point, I was involved in this process. Yeah. I, I, I wasn't stepping out for the three seconds at the beginning. No, I think that all of that was just initial. It was me. Okay. I mean, I guess we might have done it, but I'm remembering me doing it. So if you're not remembering you doing it, then... Yeah. Um, yep. Okay. Yep. And it, you do have to go away once you can get away for, like, more than a minute. You do need to leave so that your scent is not just standing outside the door. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because then they know... I mean, even if they can't see or hear you, they know you're, sna- you're 
if, yeah. if you haven't gone down the block. Yeah, and you know, obviously the gate closing behind you as you leave, if you have a gate in your front yard or whatever. Yeah. So yeah, it's just it's just that. And the other thing is, um, on another dog, actually, we would give a treat as we were leaving the house. So they would have like a chewy... Oh, we always do that, yeah. ...kind of a thing. So actually, they look forward to you going away because they get a treat. <laughs> and then uh, when you come back in, you just ignore them for the first three or four minutes. Yeah. And, and generally, you try to get treats that will take them more than three seconds to engulf. Right. So yeah, that they, just, they just focus on that. And by the time, oh, the treat's gone. Oh, all right. Yeah, and they're and they're in a calm mental state at that point, and they've had some fun. Yeah, so maybe try that. Yep. Any uh, thoughts for the lead? Oh, the lead. The thing that worked really well was Scuttle, our first dog, and I've never had the fortitude to do it again. <laughs> is as soon as they pull, you just stop. You stop where you are, and they'll eventually stop pulling and turn around, and look at you like, "Well, aren't we going?" And you just wait for them. To either sit down or calm down or whatever cue you want to do. But they can't be pulling. They can't be doing what they're doing. And it might take five, ten minutes for the first dozen times that you do it. But basically, as soon as they figure out that you only move, you as a group, only move when the human wants to move, then um, then they become a lot more attentive to you. And Scuttle was absolutely great on leash. Mm. So uh, I would think that. Now, it could just be, you know, different dog breeds. are Some are more pulley than others. But... That really worked well, and I wish I had the fortitude. But we also haven't had another puppy. We, we got Dobby as a puppy, and Scuttle trained Dobby for us. That was handy. Um, but other than that, we had adult dogs. So I haven't really had that, that sort of starting out from the very beginning experience with anybody. But I think our next group, we're going to get two puppies mm. together Yeah. in 10 years. The girls we have now, Gertrude does actually pull quite a bit. And we talked about, ah, do we want to take the time to train her? Uh, it's too much of a pain in the butt. And so Jen just got that special got, kind of... It's called a halty collar. Yeah, the, the, basically it's the thing that goes around their nose. H-A-L-T-I. You can look it up. Yeah. And basically it redirects their thrust so that it pulls their head down a little bit. It doesn't hurt them. Yeah. Um, it, it's not one of those ones... It's not like a muzzle around... It's not like a cage around their mouth. It's it's just like an extra loop of the leash that goes over the top of their nose. Right. And then the leash attaches underneath that loop so that... When they're pulling, they're actually pulling their head down. At which point they... They stop pulling. Yeah. It works really well. Yeah, and it it, it takes a get... I mean, because obviously they're... It, it, it doesn't hurt them, but they're just not used to having, effectively, a bridle. Yep. For all intents and purposes. But they get used to it. And, yeah. So that's a, that's a way to do it. I don't know if that would work on a four-month-old, though. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I would say since you've got a puppy, take advantage of their willingness to learn anything you want to teach them. Yeah. And just stop and be prepared. I mean, it might take, like I said, it might take 10 minutes. So carry your smartphone. Have your podcast ready. Okay. Let's see. And then also Christian says they found several YouTube channels that have relaxing dog music. We did use that a lot too, mm. didn't we? Yeah, we did leave uh, the TV on. Yeah, playing literally, I'm sure, probably the same yeah. three hours of relaxing dog you know, music type things. And I think that did help too. Yeah, you know, something else that pops to mind, um, we got some of those um, t-shirts that are called Thunder Shirts that are supposed to make a dog feel like they're being hugged, and so it alleviates a lot of the stress of thunderstorms or um, Fourth of July fireworks or whatever. I don't know if something like that would work on separation anxiety, but mm. it just popped into my mind. Mm. So something like that, maybe? All right. Of course, with a puppy, you'll end up with 14 sizes as they grow, but <laughs> and they're not cheap. I think it was about $30, but... Um, yeah, we, 
we used them actually on our dogs for when in Malta because there was serious fireworks and it did help. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yep. It's like basically kind of putting them in a half wetsuit, <laughs> effectively. Yeah. Because they're neoprene, right? And they just like no, kind no, of wrap. No, no, they're not neoprene. Or am I thinking of something else? Heavily elasticized. Oh, okay, yeah. So it yeah, basically yeah. snuggles them. Yep, yep, yep. Okie doke. Let's see. So. Oh, you know, and there's also some um, like plug-in things that you can do. It's uh, like you plug it into your wall, and it would diffuse. Um, I think it's pheromones actually from mother dogs. Mother, not other. Mother. Oh. Um, so, I think we had tried that at one point, and mm. I didn't. I had see no any, idea that was happening. Yeah, I didn't see any mammoth effects, so I, I can't speak for it. But I know there's something like that out there. Hmm. Let's see. I must admit, I'm having if I'm having a Sunday afternoon nap, I'll put your channel on play <laughs> uh, <laughs> for one that I've already watched and nap. I think it's rubbed off on Lenny. So if I have to go to the shops or my wife and I are out for the night, I found that your soothing uh, tones help keep him calm. Oh, that's Aww. awesome. Helping humans and dogs. Yep. <laughs> when, I, uh, when I look at your playlist on YouTube, for some reason there are 880 videos of From Batavia. So I always go to that one. Uh, is that true? I think I noticed that not too long ago and fixed it. If so, I apologize for that. But you can just go to um, just the you know the main run-throughs one. That's pretty much every video I've ever done. That's got a thousand videos in it, so that'll keep going. All righty. Um, but don't get me wrong. Please don't fix it if it was a mistake, because it works great for me and Lenny. I think I might have fixed it. Oh, dear. I'm sorry about that. Oh, no, Lenny! Well, Lenny! Just, he has to just get a... Um... Oh, you mean so it auto... Well, it's just, yeah, I mean... Um, let's see. There were 880 videos... From my from Batavia run through, I assume. Did I have a from Batavia? How would how would you get eight hundred? I don't know. I, I remember seeing it. I did notice it, and I thought, oh, that's a weird bug. And YouTube has a delete duplicate, so I might have done it. In which case, Lenny is now suffering separation anxiety because of me, because I have failed, Lenny. Can't he just bookmark that particular video? You can. Yeah, I believe you can. Um, I think YouTube will, uh, will you can set up auto repeats because I think you can do that for music and stuff like that. But really, I mean, my main just uh, gameplay runthroughs, which you can find if you just go to rotto.com, which is the front page of YouTube of my channel, the top one is runthroughs. And that right there, if you put that playlist on, is what? There's 1,200, 1,300 videos in there uh, on an average of probably 30 minutes long. Lenny will definitely stay. Uh, Entertained. Entertained. Yeah. Okay. So, moving right along to Chris, who wonders, how many jobs have I been fired from? <laughs> In previous podcasts, I've mentioned some and hinted towards others. Uh, this is what I've pieced together so far. Can you elaborate? One, customer service. You were terminated for using a country accent. Post office, vasectomy and all your bits hanging out. Nintendo acquiring some stationery. Are there any others? And is this why you're so happy to be self-employed? What? <laughs> Customer service, you were terminated for having a country accent? Well, no. When I, when I was, that was in high school. Uh, that was probably my first actual job where taxes were collected. You know, a first real job other than like mowing people's lawns and stuff yeah. like that was working at Crazy Eric's. Yeah. Which I don't even think exists anymore. It was just like the little local mom and pop burger joint in Belfair. And I worked there in the summer. And one day I decided it would be fun when I was working the, oh. the front to just 
uh, hey y'all, so what are y'all looking for today? You know, type thing. Yeah. And I just thought it was funny. I'm sure it was terrible and everybody knew what I was doing and I was just being obnoxious. And at some point in the near future, I was told, well, we're letting you go because you don't take this seriously enough for Crazy Eric's. <laughs> You've got the word crazy in your <laughs> yeah, business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think you get to... Yeah. And uh, yes, that was my first firing. My first job ever, I was fired from. Ironically, my last job ever, I was kind of sort of quasi-fired from. That was so weird. Yeah. So... So yes, there's a definitely... All right. So, so, wait, so I'm going I'm to list all my jobs. Yeah. My actual real paycheck jobs. Crazy Eric's. And then I was a dishwasher at a restaurant in Bremerton. I don't remember the name of the restaurant. And then I uh, delivered pizzas for a pizza place. This was still in high school. Those are the three actual paying jobs I had in high school. Then when I went off to college, I worked at Altair Research doing phone surveys. I still haven't been fired. I And then I, after that, I went to Nintendo. And... Oh, wait, no. No, no, no. Uh, Altair Research, then post office... Uh, for which I was fired. Yes, I don't think I've mentioned that before. I was fired from the United States Postal. I wasn't fired. I was let go because I ended up getting a reckless driving citation, and so they couldn't let me drive the Jeeps anymore. So they wanted to keep me, but they just couldn't. Actually, it's weird that you know I was I was a PTF, a part time flex. So I worked in you know I, I had contracts. Oh, I get three months, and then I have to get renewed. Or maybe it was six months. So they still let me work for like the last month of my time, and uh, because I used Gen Scooter. Because it was a 50cc scooter and therefore did not require a driver's license. But I was kind of limited in what I could do as a mailman with literally only one bag of mail on my back riding around in a scooter. But they loved me so much they still did that. But then eventually um, I stopped for So that wasn't fired. That was being let go because of the reckless driving. Which was total bullcrap, by the way. And I don't you know if I've ever ranted about that in the past. Well, save it for next time. Alrighty. And so after that, I got the job at Nintendo, which ultimately I ended up being fired from for the whole office stationary fiasco. Yep. And then I, um, and by then the reckless was off of my record, so I went back to the post office and I stayed there until I was fired a second time from the post office. This time for the stuff that Jen won't let me talk about. Uh, because she, I've conf- I have confirmed that the statutes of limitations, I, you know, I, I cannot be held, res- I, I, I cannot be prosecuted for my federal crime that I committed to get my job back at the post office a second time. <laughs> Jen's given me the big side eye. Nope. <laughs> and we're looking at each other and I'm saying no. All right. And so I got fired from the post office for reals this time, or let go. I don't think they fired me. And then I ended up doing tech support for for Aldous. Yeah. No, 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 no. Then I went to a temp agency, and during the temp, agency, I did a bunch of stuff. I worked in like a packing place for skippers. I would come home every night covered with uh, uh, with uh, powder, Flowery, with yeah. flour. You know, their, their special batter, batter flour. I uh, smelled terrific. And I did tech support for Aldis before they got bought out by Adobe. And then that led to doing tech support for MediaVision. No, not MediaVision, for Hyperbole Studios, which led to kind of sort of quasi a job. Oh, there was another job in there. I worked briefly for Asymmetrics, which was the Paul Allen startup doing some very simple grunt work. But that was very, very quick. That was, was that the Oceans thing? Yeah, that was Oceans, exactly. I helped with that. Yeah. Did you? Yeah. Oh, that's right. Yes, you did. Yep. Um, and I say... So then I didn't get fired. I quit from hyperbole because we were working on the X-Files game and all funding stopped while there was a contract dispute between Chris Carter and Fox. And so I mean, I didn't Chris Carter, the Carter. 
I, I, I did continue working there for like at least a month or two with I no think it was pay, like right? Three months. Yeah, yeah. And eventually we said we can't do this. And then that led to getting the job at Idetic, which ultimately became Sony Bend. And then that led to Edge of Reality in Texas. And then that led to Lionhead in England. And that led to Splash Damage. And then. I retired, but I came out of retirement to go work for uh, TRC. Is that what it? TR. Sorry, it was, I what was the, what was the name of the company in Malta? TRC. Was it TRC? The Robinson Company. Yeah, the Robinson Company. Yes, uh, and then I was fired, <laughs> and um, so I, I've lost track. Chris, of how many times I've been fired, but there you go. That's my full employment history in case you were wanting to check out my CV. Or you can just go to linkedin.com slash in slash Richard Ham and you can get a, uh, a slightly less dramatic version of that story. Okay. Oh, but then also, is this why I'm so happy to be self-employed? Um, no, it's, I, I, it's being self-employed is great. It's first, I mean, Jen's done it pretty much for the majority of her professional career. I'm only doing it now. And I do have to say it's just the best because more than anything else, I have no responsibility to other people. I only have, I'm only responsible to myself and I suppose to the backers of the show. I do feel a great deal of responsibility there. But that's kind of like a diffused almost ephemeral responsibility as opposed to, hey, you know what? If I don't do my job well, either I'm messing things up for my boss and that's just going to put me under a lot of stress or even worse, as I work my way up the food chain, if I don't do my job well, everybody underneath me, they could lose their jobs uh, if this project gets canceled or whatever. And that was so stressful for so many years. I'm happy to not have to bear that weight. Uh, just, Just stressful about just me and Jen and mom now, I suppose. Okay, which is a lot less than an entire company. So, Marco wonders. Heard you talking about series and good websites. Keep track of everything. As a TV junkie myself, I use a watch app. A great app for smartphones you can browse while watching on your couch. Well, I would have to have my phone on my couch. I have to admit, somehow, I know this is the thing these days, but Jen and I, when we come home, we just plug our phones into the wall and then we never use them around the house. <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, I know it's just, it's, it is the de facto thing. Your phone is with you at all times, but our phone is with us whenever we go out mm. and I'm kind of glued to it then, but I have a laptop at home. Why would I be glued to a, yeah, yeah I, I don't understand the constant ubiquitous use of phones, even in your home when you've got a much bigger, nicer screen with an actual keyboard. So, but still, that's cool. Uh, watch app for folks who do stick, who do browse their phone while sitting on the couch watching TV. Okay, and thoughts on? Oh, I don't know if I want to say this because Jen doesn't even know this exists. Oh, and and she'll be so surprised and so happy when I say, "Hey, what do you want to watch tonight?" And I say, "Well, I don't know. How about this?" And she's like, oh! "So I'm not even going to say it out loud." Um, <laughs> uh, but Marco, you know the question, and I will say, "Yeah, I'm pretty excited." Apparently, I am too. Jen would be super duper excited, but I mean, I, yeah, she has no concept at all of anything that's going on in the zeitgeist or pop culture. I mean, literally a few months ago, Jen asked me, "So, what's this whole Me Too thing about?" I mean, she literally it just completely passed her by. Uh, she is so disconnected from anything other than just the immediate concerns of her life, which. It's probably a key to happiness, I imagine. Hmm. Yep. But anyway, so I'm not going to say that one out loud, Marco. But uh, yeah, very excited. Me, yeah, both of us, super excited. It's just Jen doesn't know it yet. And Are you going to have to put something in the show notes so that everybody else knows what you're talking about? Yes. If you don't know what I'm talking about, folks, it'll be in the... As always, all the questions are listed in the show notes. All right. If you would go abroad for a stationary sabbatical, 
No around the world trip for one year. Ooh. Which, um, Marco, will do very soon. Yeah. And you would know with 99% certainty that you will come back. (laughs) Would you leave your games behind or take some? Even big box games. No, we would take some. Yeah, totally. Of course. Yeah, if we were going to go live somewhere. Like Rome for a year? Why Rome? I just love Rome. Why not New Zealand? Oh, New Zealand. I mean... Yeah. I mean, we've been to Rome. We haven't been. I know. I just, I just really want to explore Rome more. Yeah, all right. Well, okay. So if we were, yeah, yeah, I would imagine. Of course, we would. I mean, we would take. We'd probably. I have offered to do this top ten several times, and the voters always said no. But I would think it'd be very interesting to do a top ten where, hey, top ten games that I would squeeze into one suitcase. By which I mean, I would toss the boxes, um, you know, break everything down just to their component parts, so you can get really big experiences in a single suitcase kind of thing. Uh huh. So yeah, totally, totally would take some. Totally. Moving right along to Rochelle. Rochelle meant to send this question last month, but got busy traveling and moving country. Congratulations, Rochelle. Completely forgot. Rochelle often listens to the podcast in the car with her husband while they're traveling and has to remind him not to listen without her. The question is... This is Rochelle from New Zealand. Rochelle just moved to New Zealand. New Zealand. Which is not the place that you would want to do a sabbatical, apparently. Rochelle, are we wrong? Is Jen right to want to go to Rome instead of... I didn't say instead of. Of Wellington? I'm trying to think of the names of cities in New Zealand. I think Wellington is... Yeah. yeah. All right. The question to both of us is, what do we think of the most recent season of Survivor? And did we like the twist? And are we happy with the winner? (sighs) I... I, You know, as soon as the season is over, I forget everything. Okay, well, it was uh, Redemption Island... Redemption Island was the twist? Yeah. And remember, you sure? Yes. That's the most recent one? They all blur together. Yes. Redemption Island. And oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, remember, they, uh, and um, twice the people came back. Yeah. Yes. Okay. And the guy that And won, that's the twist? The, the, yeah, that was Redemption Island. And the guy that won was the guy who came back from Redemption Island? Wasn't he? Was he? The uh, the, the nerdy no, guy? Have to, yeah, with the glasses. Uh, let's look. Let's look. All right. Recent. I'm pretty sure he won. Survivor uh, season. Do, 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 do. The Edge of Extinction. Is that what it? Cause, oh, yeah, because they, they were on the Edge of Extinction when they were right, stuck the, out on that third beach or whatever. Thing, yeah. yeah. The Edge of Extinction. Uh, just give me the summary. Edge of Extinction winner. So, do we like Edge of Extinction? Um, the. Oh, this is a terrible list. Give me a better list. Answer the question. Answer the question. Um, I think, I yeah, I enjoy Survivor no matter what they're doing. Unfortunately, I thought that the first lady who got sent to um, Edge of Extinction was really, really bitter. And I think she tainted it a lot for the rest of the people that came along. Um, So I thought that was a bit unfortunate. But she came good in the end. And I guess she had enough where she worked out of her system or something like that. So other than that, yeah, I thought it was good. And everybody knew, um, you know, who was on the island that there was going to be at some point that they could get back in. So I thought that was kind of cool. Edge of Extinction winner. I don't know why I'm having such a hard time with this. Uh, that guy won. Chris Underwood. Chris. Uh, oh, so he was the second guy that came back. And he won? Remember the glasses guy came back the first time and he came back the second time. Who were he, the f- he beat Joe. Remember Joe? Uh, who were the final three? Him? Chris, glasses guy, and the girl. Who didn't really do a lot. And the girl. Oh, man. I, I, as soon as the remember season's really over. skinny girl with the red hair? I remember the girl with Tourette's. She was awesome. Yeah. I loved her. She, she loved Everybody her loved her. She, yeah. And she totally left. Yeah. 
All right. Um, uh, well, right. How, can you just look Sur at the cast? This is exciting for people to listen to. Survivor Final Three. Just give me a picture of them. I need to see what they look like. Um, is that no? Sir, all right. Survivor Edge of Extinction Final Three. Just show me a picture of the final three. It's huh? That's not him. All right. Here they are. Oh, there they are. Oh. Etsy girl, Etsy lady was one of the final three, oh. honey. Surely you had to you not, know, not have solidarity lady. with Etsy woman. Yeah. She was representing all Etsy. Yeah. Etsy, Etsy, Etsy. But still, did you know Jen has an Etsy shop? <laughs> this is your chance to drop this your URL. A, this isn't Glasses Guy. So, oh, right. Remember Glasses Guy took on Chris at the fire making. Oh, yes. And Chris beat him. Yes. Okay. So oh, that's right. Because... He opted to because yeah, he, he had did. the option. He could have sent yeah. either of them and guaranteed. No, but Chris, I think Chris was the one that had won the immunity. And so he took on glasses guy because he wanted to have the legit of it. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So he took these two um, weaker kids. Yeah. The, the, the Southern guy and Etsy girl. Yep. Um, yeah. I, I guess, I guess. So clearly we don't. Clearly we are, our memory for this is, is uh, we would have liked glasses guy to win, I think. Yeah. I think we were both pro in pro glasses guy. <laughs> Although I would have liked Tourette's Girl to win because she was awesome. And with all her silliness with the chickens and everything, it was just so entertaining and so fun. And silly and ridiculous. And I'm sure I would have been very pissed with her if I would actually been there. Oh, yeah. But um, still, it was, it was great to watch. I don't, why, why do these Survivor people eat the dang chickens? What is wrong with them? Keep them for the eggs. What is wrong with you people? Or eat the roo They always leave the rooster. I know. It's just insane. I think it's a male-dominated society thing. Or they just don't... I mean... Yeah, anyway. So, I guess that answers Rochelle's question. Um, oh, I, for the the Edge of Extinction, I thought it was okay. I didn't think it was one of their better ones. I mean, they've had other times where people have come back, and there was never anything particularly interesting going on in the Edge of Extinction. Every time they'd cut back to them, it's oh, everybody's just sitting around and being miserable. Well, but they did occasionally have, like... They, uh, the, the scavenger hunts weren't particularly interesting either. It, there was I don't I don't I think that was it, was it was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. Well, but I think that that was a big growth experience for everybody who was on there. They had time to just be with themselves, you know, yeah. and 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 grow as people. I, I suppose that's a good Confront point. Their fears and you know whatever. I guess doesn't make for good TV though. I didn't think it made for good after TV when they said that they had this mm. experience and it made them grow and they are very happy with themselves now. Okay. Alrighty then. Uh, honey, we're almost done because Bartek says that we're fans of Star Trek. And if you recall correctly, on a previous Q&A, we've been watching Discovery. Yes. Have we enjoyed it? <clears throat> yeah, pretty much. Although, as I've said before, I don't really enjoy the Klingon stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Jen had a very hard time with the first half of the first season because I, mean, I don't know what your problem was. She, she, you know, the, the fact that the Klingons were such a major part of the storytelling was just a huge turnoff for reasons that I don't understand. Mm -hmm. Is because you didn't like having to read subtitles? I, I guess I, I don't like the noises they make. I don't like the Klingon language. Well, it was very weird. I mean, the the Klingon language in Discovery was much more. I, well, yeah, but it was... Um, Look at that. I made the thing go high. You did. Well done. You were speaking at my volume level for a second there. Um, <laughs> you screaming was, Klingon is was... my base volume level. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. It was, it's much more articulated than it has been in the past and definitely slower. 
I, it's interesting because I, 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 I don't know, but I would assume the showrunners of Star Trek Discovery were trying to make the Klingons more alien. Because they never have really been all that alien. They've Yeah, they've got... In the original tra- series, they just had Fu Manchu and wore some quasi dark face basically mm-hmm. um and then in the oh they, or they just put a headpiece on and uh you know talked a bit more abruptly but otherwise they're pretty much human uh, with just like some slight cultural differences but uh you know and so they were trying to make them more alien and i i personally really appreciate that i thought that was actually very nice because aliens shouldn't be quite so human and so and that went to their speech patterns as well uh because it wasn't just what jen was doing a representation of more what you would hear on next gen Klingon talking, oh. as opposed to more. You know, it, it was just—it just sound. I'm sure it was the same language, but it, its delivery was so radically different. Well, they've always said that there's different um, groups of Klingons. Yeah. So, um, yes. They, yeah. They have regional accents as well. I, I, yes, I suppose so. But I, I think it was a conscious choice they did to try to make them look and feel more alien, and I thought that was cool. Uh, but apparently, I mean, it, it was the delivery or. Or was the storyline you didn't like? Both. I just, I just don't care. No, okay. Much. Well, I mean, but there was a lot of Klingon storylines in Next Gen as well. Did you just not care when, I guess when I Picard would have to go to 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 Quasnos or, or Kronos, Kronos and yeah, I know, but it's officially with a Q. It's it's. Oh, uh, is it? Yeah, uh, um, yeah. Uh, English speakers say Kronos, but it's that's not the proper. But anyway, yeah, Klingon we'll say Kronos. Okay. I thought you were just no. Okay. Uh, I, I don't know. I just don't... I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. But then the second half of the first season, when yeah. things went crazy... Yeah. Just like, whoa! Uh, Jen really loved it. So the first season ended very strong. Mm-hmm. And how did you like the second season? Um, Pretty good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Better. I mean, I, I understand the whole reason that they were telling the story that way, but I find that a bit of a frustrating way to read a story. I, I pre- What are you I talking didn't... about? Which part? Um... Well, do we need to worry about spoilers? Um, okay, folks. Actually, we'll tell you what. We're going to come back. We'll do a part two on Star Trek in case people haven't seen um, the second season of Discovery. Because I don't know what Jen's talking about here. And uh, But we'll go to the final question. So we'll be back in a second, Bartek. Honey, as always, Henrik would like to know what's your wisdom of the month. Oh, you didn't tell me in advance. I didn't give her any advance warning. Okay. Even though it was actually the first question. I saved it to last. So Jen is going to have to very quickly, on Thank the spot, come up with some wisdom. Wisdom ASAP. Oh, oh. Hold on, so Jen is going Pinterest. to, yeah, I, uh, Jen has 5,000 bits of wisdom in her wisdom Pinterest sub list thing. So she's going to find one really quick. Yep. Let's see. Here it comes. I'm sorry, I didn't warn you. I totally yeah, forgot that's to. That's okay. I'm just trying to, like, something that I'm... You're feeling? I'm feeling. You don't just, you're not going to pick a random one? You got one that's uh, appropriate to us at this point? I'm trying to find one. And... <laughs> Here's a funny one based right. on what we did. We were talking about earlier with your mom. Says, All right. Today's menu, eat it or starve. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I don't know if those are your greatest words of wisdom, but if you want to go with that. No, no. I, I'm going to go with, I've got this one and it's got Snoopy and Woodstock on, okay. on a um, All right. roller coaster. And it says, today is a good day to have a good day. Today, yes, today is always a good day to have a good day. Yep. That is true, Snoopy. Yep. Well done. Look at them, they're having a great time. Yep, and that comes back to the, hey, just enjoy the Game of Thrones you got, as opposed to bemoaning the one you didn't get. Okay, folks, because today is a good day to have a good day. Yeah! 
That's great. Okay, folks. And with that, we're going to say thanks once again for listening. I'll be back again in a month, although next podcast is going to be gen-free, sadly, because it's going to be my Gen Con preview that I do every year where I'm just going to talk for God knows how long about all the games that are going to be available at Gen Con on, was it, uh, the 2nd? of August, something like that, the 2nd or the 3rd, the day after Jen gets back from England. Uh, she gets back on the 1st, so I think Gen Con starts on the 2nd. So next podcast is going to be all about that, and it'll be a bit quicker than normal, probably three weeks from now. And otherwise, thanks very much for listening. Have a very nice day. Talk to you later. So long. Bye-bye. And now, spoiler alert for the second season of Star Trek Discovery. Honey, um, and I suppose retroactively, or do you, do you have anything else to say about the first season other no. than... I mean, you just, you just love the second half of the first season. Yeah. And we don't have to say what. But now, for although if we're spoiling the second, if we're talking about the specifics, and yeah, so Jen loved all the... I don't even want to say it. I'm so spoiler-averse. Anyway, so second season, what what was your problem? Oh, okay, so we had... What, a, that you didn't like, but you understood the way they did it? Yeah, I do. And it's What's basically that? they give these little hints about stuff, and then you have to wait for the whole rest of the season to get the full story about all what all the hints are for. So the hints of... What, with, like, what was a hint? Well, oh, like the Spock, Red Angel stuff. Yeah, that Spock... So you did not like even the structure childhood. of the Red Angel? Yeah. I didn't like how that story was told. The, the Specifically, the, the the mystery, the setup, the building, the and then ultimate resolution of yeah. what the Red Angel is. And all the hints and the, you know, little tiny bits, and you're trying to, you know, yeah don't like that. I like a linear storytelling, because I got a lot of stuff in my head. If you'll just tell me the story, I'll enjoy it. I promise. <laughs> so you're saying you would have preferred that the opening of Season 2 of Star Trek Discovery is... 60 years ago on Vulcan, or no, 30 year, 20 years ago, t- th- yeah, probably 30 years ago, I don't know how ex- exactly old Michael Burnham is, thir- well, thir- 30, 36 years, 34 years ago, no, she's not that and old. you would have rather the first episode, the first half of the first episode have just been her with her parents before the Klingon attack, mm-hmm. which wasn't revealed till halfway through the season, and then the second half and the second episode would have just been, oh, now it's her... Growing up with Spock on Vulcan, and then Spock having his first interaction with the Red Angel, and then the third episode went in. Thirty years later, now we pick up, and hey, we have a new captain! Isn't it awesome? Here's Mr. Pike. Everybody loves him. That's how you would have rather been in a purely linear narrative, because that's no, what a purely linear narrative would have been. I don't need a purely linear, but I just they did all these flashbacks and things happening at different times and different um, from his point of view and from her point of view and the Angel and. Then um, her mother coming back, and I just it was just it was just too much, I think. Mm-hmm. So if it could have been a little bit more structured, like a normal story, I would have been happier with it. I have to admit, actually, having just walked that through, I think that would have been pretty cool. Oh, yeah, whole first episode happens thirty years before everything. <laughs> okay. That would actually be pretty neat. But oh, that's really interesting. So you're just saying it was too convoluted for you? Yeah. I mean, but I, I, I see. I thought you would have loved it because. Pretty much the first half of the season was turning into your favorite type of show. Hey, there's a different random problem for people we're going to solve on a different planet every week. Oh, okay. I'm just talking about the whole Red Angel flashbacks, working with Spock, family drama stuff. Mm-hmm. That's I'm. I, otherwise, I liked all the other stuff. Okay. All righty. But, but that was the main thrust of the whole second season was what's going on with this Red Angel and are we all going to die and mm-hmm. stuff. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Okay. Let's see. Back to Bartek, since this is his question. Yes. Alrighty. For me, it was the first Star Trek. I should say, by the way, that was a bit of an insight into Jen's and my uh, re- you know mutual enjoyment of shows. We tend not to talk about them that much, really. This, I mean, because I had no idea that Jen had this problem at all. After a show is over, we usually do not talk about it. Hmm. Very rarely do 
Yeah. Um, we talk about games after we played them. We mostly play talk about them while we're playing. So yeah, we, we just watch and consume and enjoy and then move on. Yep. Which is why we don't get too caught up. Back to the first question about um, Game of Thrones. Anyway, though, Bartek. For me, it was my first Star Trek series that I've watched. I think I've only seen Star Trek Generations movie a long time ago. How does Discovery compare to classic series? Which of the classic Star Treks would you recommend for a newbie who enjoyed Discovery? So, they've, Bartek has just watched the first two seasons of Discovery. Where should he go next? The thing is, Bartek, Discovery is so radically different yeah. from any other iteration of Star Trek. With the exception, I would say, of the new Star Trek movies. Yeah, the new Star Trek movies are a bit more like this. Yeah, because I mean, the, the new Star Trek movies are... You know, well, obviously, the, the production value, like the TV show, is through the roof. High budget, you know, modern effects and all of that. And you know, more exciting and dynamic filmmaking and all of that. And just like more up-tempo, more action... Uh, I was going to say less cerebral, but that's not being fair to the to the new movies. They're, they're cerebral as well. So obviously, the the uh, what's it called? The Kelvinverse movies, uh, Star Trek, Star Trek Into Darkness, and uh, Star Trek. I think. Oh my god, I can't think of the third one. It was another thing where they did the Into Darkness Star, uh, Star Trek. Oh man, how could I forget the name? Although we've only seen it once, Star Trek uh, After Into. I can't think. of uh, what's it called? Ah, oh, what came after Into Darkness? It is. Come on, Wikipedia. Don't dig me around. Beyond Star Trek Beyond. Right. So those are the obvious ones to go to next because they will be more in keeping with what you're used to. After you've got that out of the way. Out of the way. After you've enjoyed those. After yes. After you've enjoyed those. Actually, what'd that be like? Because you're seeing Discovery, and that's prime. In spite of what conspiracy theorists think, there's there are there's uh, internet conspiracies that say Star Trek Discovery does not actually exist in the same universe as Star Trek the original series and Star Trek Next Gen. That's all this parallel universe stuff. Well, it could very well be because it's, there's... but it's not. Oh, all right. It's prime. But there are people who hate Discovery so much that they are trying to ensure oh. that the lineage of their beloved Star Trek is not besmirched because all oh, this all happens in another. We don't have to worry about it. It's mm. it's more silly. I want to hate what you gave me rather than enjoy what you gave me type things, Um, which we talked about earlier. Yes, I suppose I was hating what they gave me. See, strictly speaking, what should you do? What should you do? I mean, after Discovery, the the events of the original Star Trek from the 60s happens 10 years later. So it's the natural progression to start watching the classic series. And personally, I love the classic series, but it is so... um, Slower. No, no, no. I would no. I would not say. Uh, classic series Trek is much more up tempo, high energy, has much more velocity in terms of its storytelling than Next Gen. Next Gen is when things got slow and stayed and ponderous and navel gazing. Original Trek. You 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 haven't watched Original Trek probably since you were a kid. Uh, I, I've watched them all. You know within. The, probably the last ten years. And no, they are they are fast. They are quick. They are punchy. And they're great, but they are also incredibly cheesy, and it is very difficult <laughs> for people to see past, you know, the restrictions they are working under. You know, the ridiculously small budgets because every rock is really just a big piece of styrofoam. And if you look closely, sometimes they'll bump into them and they'll move because they're just styrofoam <laughs> painted rocks. Yeah. And um, you know, and and you know, the delivery is different. It's not very modern. It's aesthetic, but you know, the storylines themselves are timeless. Yeah. And uh, you know and the characters are great. So if 
you can put aside the, the modern sensibilities. Old, yeah, the, and, and, and embrace the kind of more old-fashioned storytelling. Just pretend you're going to a vintage store. And, and, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would say you should watch those next because it literally picks up. Actually, exactly, because of how Discovery is ended. Yeah, with Pike. Or no, because of how Discovery is ended with, well, we're into spoiler territory, with, oh yeah, they're all... It, you know, further in the future than we've ever seen in Star Trek before now. Because oh, yeah. they jump forward, whatever it was. I forget now. Uh, so, well past, hundreds of years past Picard's era. So, we're, they're into true undiscovered country. So, Discovery, as it was, as a prequel, is over. And your next choice should be, all right, well, what happened 10 years later? Let's see what happened with Spock if he took his sister's advice. Uh, spoiler alert, he did. He did find his North Star. And um, after that, but should... He not do that, and should he go prequel, prequel, and now watch Enterprise first? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. That's hard. You should watch them all because they're all amazing. But if it were me, I would probably watch the original series, and then I would just go in the order they were aired, and then I'd do Next Gen, and then I'd do Deep Space Nine, and then I'd do Voyager, and then I'd do Enterprise, and you know, do the movies. Um, you know, so watch the original series and then watch the motion picture and Wrath of Khan and, you know, all the way up to Star Trek six, Undiscovered Country. And then after Undiscovered Country is over, then go over to Next Gen and watch Next Gen all the way through until you get to uh, Star Trek. That Next Gen was like seven years, wasn't it? I don't remember. It was long. Yeah. And watch all of that and then watch the Next Gen feature films and... Although that's all kind of weird because Next Gen and Deep Space Nine were kind of happening simultaneously because they were being aired simultaneously. There are, if you just do a search online, there are, you know, for like Star Trek, watch Star Trek in proper chronology, you will find people that have said, this is the way you should watch it so you get the story in order. Um, (laughs) Some people like chronological order. Yes, because it gets a little confusing with later Next Gen and Deep Space Nine and the Next Gen feature films. Yeah, but... Deep Space Nine is sort of off on its own thing, as is Voyager. Yeah, but I mean, but they were, I mean, but there were crossovers. Um, you know, halfway through Deep Space Nine, oh, Worf shows up. Mm. You know, which happens after. Oh, spoilers! Since you haven't seen any of it, okay, I'm gonna stop yeah. <laughs> saying anything else because uh, that was a surprise for some people. But in our pre-internet days, uh, so yeah, I, 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 for me, that's what I would do. But I, I don't know you, Bartek. I cannot uh, recommend. I can guarantee you, though, there are, if you just do a Google search for this, there are plenty of people who have weighed in on this over time. Okay. And, uh, yeah. So now, we are done again. And so, Honey Pie, are we now going to rewind and are you going to do the Q&A for the game stuff or do you got to get back to packing? No, I'm packed. I think we can do it. You sure? Because, I mean, this, this was actually a short list. There are twice as many emails that are game related okay. and i'm just giving you a way out if you uh, want to not sit here silently for 85 percent of it mm-hmm. and only weigh in occasionally okay we will discuss all right well uh, you already know the answer because you are hearing this literally we're <laughs> the ones who are having to experience this in a non-chronological order but once again folks thanks very much for listening uh talk to you later have a nice day so long Bye-bye. bye bye bye